69. It's on a very special day indeed. Last night was a podcast with my mum and dad, actually, about having a son in Arizona prison and her forced adoption. And we went over 700,000 subscribers. So before we commence this show, I'd just like to give a huge thank you to you guys, all the viewers, our friends, our community, all of my were extreme workaholic team members that made it possible, including Andrew Gold, Jen, James, Joe, Ash, of course, who exists. And then we've got Victoria, <laughs> social media, Dr. Das, Matthew Steeples, Dave and Jim, Material Studios, Liam, the cameraman, and on and on and on it goes. So we are absolutely over the moon that despite the forces of evil pitted against us ever since we started covering a certain big case exposing certain big people. That's when the forces of evil came down on us. Rival podcasters trying to take over, tried to destroy my reputation, etc. Trolls, hackers, you name it. We lost 15k subs when we got hacked earlier this year. You name it. Thanks to you guys, we have continued to be able to pursue our mission. And I think we've interviewed now almost a thousand guests as well. So huge thank you to almost the 1,000 amazing guests that have been on wow. this channel. Mate, yeah. do you want another stat? I'm just looking at something here. Problem. Um, you're currently on 99,744,731 video views. So very close to 100 million. I didn't know that, Andrew. But you know what? We got half our channel deleted when we were at 500k subs. Uh, and we had 60 million views on, on the stuff that they didn't like. And all that got deleted. So we're probably closer to 160 million That's if amazing. you add all that in. Well, it's still something to celebrate when we hit the 100 million again. It's sort of a coming back from the dead kind of thing, isn't it? After what they tried yeah, to do. Yeah, I love a celebration. Any excuse. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, Party time! time. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with Atwood Unleashed, if you're new to the show... This is just the introduction. The show's going to start properly at six. And it is a four and a quarter hour show. We've got six guests. First two hours are exclusively on YouTube. And hours three and four are on Patreon, where we have a lot of band content and we can talk about things that we can't talk about on the mainstream platforms. So massive thank you to the Patreons who've been with us for years, who do enable us to make shows like this. And then because I'm going on the road for two weeks... You're not going to have to wait till next Wednesday for the next show. It's going to be Friday. This Friday, 6 p.m. is going to be Atwood Unleashed 70. We've literally got multi-hour content going out every night of the week this week. We have got two to three hour podcasts and live streams every single night this week. All right. So if you're wondering who's coming on tonight, 6 o'clock, we've got Janice McAfee. She's come back. She is the wife of the late John McAfee, founder of McAfee Virus Software, who exited the company before going public, turned his back on corporate life to live his own way. But on the 23rd of June, 2021, he was found dead in a Spanish prison cell. Allegedly, he had committed suicide, and we know what that means. Janice is going to speak to us about how he wasn't suicidal and question why the Spanish police still have not released his body. Can you believe it? He was found dead 23rd of June 2021 
that is over a year ago and the Spanish authorities have still not released his body. There is something definitely out of the ordinary going on there. Yeah, very fishy indeed. I was following that closely because I was such a, I was so amazed by that film Gringo about him that I just, you know, I, I was really following that and I was, uh, you know, totally shocked. I'm bewildered right now. So hopefully we'll get some, you know, clarification, but we'll see. So second guest is going to be with Andrew. Yeah, yeah, that will be Camila, Camila Escalante, right? Done my best Spanish there, who is reporting from Latin America. Camila will be joining us to discuss a range of topics from colossal coup failures, as in a, launching a coup of a, of a country, in Venezuela, including mercenary and terror plots to the Washington Guaido Transnational Criminal Organization, as well as CIA, CIA Director William Burns' denial of Havana Syndrome, Yet the U.S. continues to compensate victims of this mystery syndrome. For those who don't know, the Havana syndrome is about, you know, spies who went over to Cuba and they start hearing weird, strange ringing and things in their ears. And people are, you know, the U.S. are denying that it's a real thing, but they are paying out. So that's a really interesting one. Um, and I'd love to hear more about that. And then at seven o'clock, it will be Karthik Sekar uh, or Karthik Sekar. A trained scientist and engineer, finished a PhD in chemical engineering at Northwestern University, postdoctoral position in systems biology at ETH Zurich. So a very clever, clever person. His book, After Meat, is said to provide much needed scientific clarity and captivating detail on the alt meat industry. Uh, Kartik will also be discussing Bill Gates buying up farmland in the United States and what he thinks his main objectives are for doing so. I am fascinated about that, fascinated about the food stuff as well. Sean and I are both vegetarians, so hopefully he's not going to tell us we can't even eat all that stuff as well. We're going to be left with nothing to bloody eat. And that's let's, do the, let's do the poll again. Put a one in the chat if you think Bill Gates is buying up farmland for humanitarian reasons. Put a two in the chat if you think Bill Gates is buying up farmland for alleged dubious reasons hmm. <laughs> i think you know already what's going to happen stirring things stirring the pot aren't you here they come here they come ash has voted two we do have a one there huge thank you for the super chat easy e sheba dog oh, laughing slightly while blushing and covering his mouth with one arm what does that mean can you translate that super chat andrew where is it? I can't see on, it. On the screen. It's on the screen. Well, Izzy gone. does sometimes talk in riddles. I have a, it does. I get a lot Aphorisms. of Izzy on my channel as well. Sheba dog <laughs> laughing slightly <sighs> while blushing, covers well with one arm. Is it? Is that that he was trying to do? Like, maybe they've got like an emoji keyword thing. Is that an ancient Chinese proverb? I don't, it feels like it's like the, the description <laughs> of an emoji, doesn't it? <laughs> I feel Easy like E, stop being so that. cryptive. Give us a clue. All right. Yeah. Then at 7.30 to 8, rounding up on the YouTube section, we've got one of our most reoccurring guests ever, Norman Baker. And he's going to be speaking to us about the Queen reportedly inviting Harry and Meghan to Balmoral. Whether there will be a second Harry and Meghan opera interview, also, he's going to be talking about the race for PM with Liz Truss and Rishi. Rishi. <laughs> yes. Is it Rishi? It Rishi. Is. I said risky. I said risky this morning. 
Rishi Sunak. Sunak. Rishi Sunak. Yeah. Who's going to become the next PM. And then Andrew is going to be handling our first guest on Patreon at 810. Yeah, the esteemed American physician and author, Dr. Julia Engel. Um, that's our first guest on Patreon. So I hope you do sign up, switch over to there, come see us, come listen to us. Dr. Engel authored Angels Over Moscow, which is an inspirational first-person account of her life. She founded the nonprofit Miramed Institute to devote her energy and resources to helping reform maternal and infant health care in Russia. During a mission to improve medical care for children in orphanages, she discovered a link between the state institutions and an international network that transported young Russian girls to Scandinavia for, you know, for, well, I don't know if we're supposed to. Yeah, they know. Way, they, know what we're, they know what we're talking about. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. stuff the algorithm doesn't like. Yeah, yeah, no good. But that's going to be an hour. It's going to be really hard-hitting and really really interesting i'm really looking forward to talking to dr juliet engel that is and then it's you back on i believe mr atwood yeah we're greatly honored to have investigative journalist george webb who has established the name for himself in alt media covering the pandemic and the origins of it tonight he's going to be giving us his insights on his lawsuit against cnn and jeff zucker and the weapon stories he's been working on so that's what we have got lined up yep. for tonight. Janice McAfee is going to be coming on shortly. Yep. But I just wanted to start out with a yep. roundup of Elon Musk's latest news. Because this is a lot of us are hoping Musk buys Twitter. I mean, yeah, yeah Musk is the James Bond supervillain, etc. But Twitter can't get any worse with censorship than it already has so in the beginning twitter were running to the hills saying no way are we going to let it buy this company and now he said there's too many bots and he doesn't want it and twitter is trying to legally force him to buy the company so here's the latest his, his lawyers have filed a letter to the delaware chancery court saying essentially that twitter isn't playing nice in the pretrial process and should be forced to do so the letter is addressed to Chancellor Kathleen McCormick, who will ultimately decide the case of whether Musk can get out of his contract to buy Twitter for $44 billion, and also requests that the trial should be scheduled to begin on October the 17th. Last week, as we reported, McCormick decided the trial will start in October. Twitter had pushed for proceedings to commence as early as possible, arguing that the ongoing shenanigans are hurting the company and that things should be resolved as quickly as possible. Twitter wants to make Musk pay $54.20 a share, and it's presently trading around 39 Musk's team have asked for a much longer timeline, hoping to start the trial early next year, but McCormick picked October and told the two sides to begin preparations. Now, Team Musk is saying it tried to begin the discovery process and was repeatedly thwarted by Twitter. Quote, Defendants' efforts to make sure this case is trial-ready by October have not been reciprocated by Twitter, who, at every turn, has sought to delay. This is the lawyer's letter to McCormick. His primary angle for getting out of the deal seems to be to prove that Twitter has a spam bot problem it didn't represent accurately, and he needs the info to prove it. But, of course, that's not what the case is completely about. It's about the contract to buy Twitter 
and whether Elon is required to honor it. So before I get Andrew's input on this, let's do a survey. Put one in the chat if you want Elon Musk to buy Twitter like me. You believe that Twitter could not be any worse with censorship than it is. It could only improve from there. Put a two in the chat if you want Twitter to stay with Twitter and remain as it is. What, what do you think, Andrew? What's your personal perspective? Well, I, I've, you know, I'd say that it could definitely get worse. I mean, it's, it's, not, gr it's not great, the censorship. There is censorship. It is, a, it is a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, it's something we're, we're truth seekers. I think both of us, we want things out in the open. There is that argument, which I often rally against. There's that argument of, you know, if, if, if people are on Twitter and they're bullying and there's harassment and things like that, should that, should that be blocked? That might lead to people, you know, doing things to themselves. It might lead to uh, other people, you know, incite other people to violence. But at the same time, I'm someone who believes very much in free speech. I'm not comfortable with the concept of a social media platform deciding what can and what can't be said, what is what is considered sort of violent speech and what isn't. So I'm with you. I'd quite like Elon Musk to take over. I don't like any of the censorship stuff. Um, but it could. I think it could be worse. It could be, you know, we could be talking about China. We could be talking about real, real censorship of ideas. And things. Uh, but... But yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm not comfortable either with with these platforms uh, being able to being able to choose what is and what isn't bad speech. You know, it's no, it's a slippery slope. What do you think? Yeah, I think it was mostly ones in the poll, but some people are saying that yeah. they don't trust either. So it's like the lesser of the evils, isn't it? Really, evil Musk. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it's 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 really complicated. It's really really complex, and, and I think part of me just wants to see what happens. It sort of shake things up with Musk in charge, you know. So Janice McAfee is about to come in to the mm -hmm. live stream. So Andrew will be back in about thirty minutes. Yeah, I will see you in thirty minutes. Lots of love to you all, and uh, have a good chat. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers. <clears throat> right, let me pull this up then for. Before I bring Janice in. All right. Hey, Janice, how's it going? And thank you so much for coming back. Hi, thank you for having me again. You're welcome. For the viewers who didn't see part one that we did with you, are you okay to just give them a little recap of your story? Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what, what exactly you guys want to know, but, um, um, obviously John and I were in a relationship. We had met back in 2013, 2012, the December of 2012. And, um, we got married and we had been together, you know, up until his death. And so, um, the last episode, I was just kind of rehashing everyone, um, or just letting everyone, informing everyone, um, about what has been happening here since John's death in Spain. I'm here in Spain. So that's what I'm. Yeah. And I think we rounded out at, you know, the mo the tragic moment, you know, over a year ago, um, when you found out what had happened. Um, do you, do you just want to take us through that, that day again, so we can start where we where we left off. Um, so yeah, um, I had spoken to John twice. Um, I had spoken to him in the morning after um, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I okay. spoken to him in the morning after um, he had come from court, and um, you know he was he was not um, he was not depressed or anything. He was definitely disappointed with the decision, 
um, from the court, but it wasn't a surprise to us. We we knew that that's what was this that we knew that that was the decision that was going to come down. Um, and so the lawyers, we had five attorneys working on his cases at the time, and they had already come up with a plan to um, to kind of combat the um, or I should say appeal the um, extradition request. So we spoke about that in the morning and um, he had the day before the day before um, he had said he mentioned something to me about having a, a premonition. And so I'm only mentioning this because he brought it up again, you know, in that morning call. Whatever it was, it bothered him very much, but he didn't want to share with me the details of it. So and even, you know, that morning he didn't want to share it, but he just, you know, just reiterated again, you know, that this he had this premonition and it was bothering him. So, um, you know, we kind of shifted the conversation away from that and he just wanted to kind of talk about you know, the lawyers and what they were doing, what their plans were, and, um, um, you know, just how his day was going, everything. So there was nothing strange about the conversation. Let me just sum it up that way. There was nothing strange about either of the two conversations that we had. We spoke in the morning and in the afternoon. And um, the last thing that he said to me on our last phone call was that I will call you later. And so, um, you know, this is what I was waiting for. We spoke every day, um, usually every day, unless there was an issue on, you know, in the prison, but we spoke every day, three times a day. They were only eight minute, eight minute calls, but they were, um, they were very precious, very precious time that we had together anyways. So I was waiting on the third call and I think it was around four-ish, four-ish PM, um, Spain time where I would just happened to be on Twitter and I was looking through my DMs and I got a DM from someone saying, it said, oh my God, tell me this isn't true. And um, so I tried to go through Twitter and see what she was referring to. And um, I just went ahead and went on Google and then I saw um, the news about John. So that's how I found out about the news. That's also how his attorney found out the news. They, the prison didn't even call his attorney to let, to let him know that John was no longer, um, you know, with us. And, um, you know, from there, things are kind of hazy for me um, um, because I was just kind of floating through my days, not really present, you know, um, uh, but as present as much as I could be, you know. So for people then out there who are watching this, and it's just absolutely universal support that's coming in for you right now, uh, everyone, everyone's wishing you, you know, condolences and, and, and well wishes. And um, when this happened, then what? How did the authorities frame it? Did they say he was depressed? Did they say he left a suicide note? Did they, you know? Did they try and like um, just justify the suicide theory? Um, they they um, never said anything um, about depression or anything. Actually, I went to the prison to collect his belongings. And I spoke to, um, I guess he was over the prison or over maybe over the guards of the prison. I'm not sure, but he was in a, an elevated position within the prison. And he spoke very highly of John. He spoke very, um, he just said he was, you know, a, a model prisoner, I guess, if you want to call it that, you know, that they never had any problems with him. He was always in a good mood. He was always trying to, um, 
you know, uh, keep a smile on his face and keep smiles on everyone else's faces. Um, he didn't get into any altercations with the guards. The guards liked him. The prisoners liked him as well. Um, they, he said even that day before when, when, before they found him, he was fine. There was no signs of, of um, him, him being down or, or feeling um, defeated, you know, like there was no other option for him after this, this court's decision. And he was speaking to me specifically about that day. Mind you, it, he was speaking in Spanish. It had to be translated to me. But, um, you know, from what I could understand of what he was saying, he seemed very genuine and, and not just trying to console me because I was grieving, you know. Um, so I, I can only go off of that, you know, um, what, what they shared with me about that. And then, then there was a... Um, story that came out later on about the um, suicide note that they found in his pocket, the alleged suicide note. Um, I don't believe it was a suicide note just because John was making tweets and he would write his tweets down and read them to me and then I would get them tweeted and that's what would happen. And so to me, it read like a tweet. Um, it didn't sound like, obviously, um, it probably sounded a little more down than his normal tweets, but remember he was in prison. He wasn't in a Martha Stewart kind of prison. He wasn't in some club fed, you know, really nice kind of white collar uh, prison. You know, he was with hardened criminals. He was in general, what we call in America, general population, which is where you're with everyone. You're not secluded or sequestered away. Um, like, um, what's his name? Jeffrey Epstein. I don't believe he was in a general population. I believe he was sequestered in a, in a special area of the prison. That wasn't what John was, his experience. He was with all of the other prisoners so um naturally his his mood would would be up and down you know um and so but but i don't believe that in any way or shape or form that that tweet would have represented how if if that was his decision if he willingly took his life i don't think that note that they allege is a suicide note would adequately represent what he would have said in his last words not at all mind you we had spoken in the afternoon so that would have given him you know what four or five six hours to come up with something more significant than than that what that note said you know just because just knowing john you know um so i don't believe that it was a suicide note yeah they're definitely grasping at straws on that note so a nexus one of the viewers has asked a question for you janice can Janice speak about what she really thinks may have happened to her husband? Um, um, you know, not in really any detail that I feel comfortable with sharing. I just don't believe that he killed himself. I just don't believe that. And I will never believe that. Um, just because of everything that's happened, you know, since then, you know, um, they took months to close their investigation into what happened. Mind you, it was an investigation I didn't request. You know, the prison itself opened the investigation. And if it's a suicide, like you leaked to the press, why are you opening an investigation? And why is it taking you seven months to complete this investigation? You know, and why am I not able to see him? You know, even still, why, why can't I see him? You know, and what I mean, see him, I mean, fully be able to, you know, have my moment to say goodbye and everything. 
you know, but, but because of their investigation is still open, I can't do that. You know, I guess it's, it's just their procedure, but it's a ridiculous procedure. You know, I've found, you know, since I've been here that the Spanish system is notoriously slow, but the particular prison that is handling this case is even more slow. And so now we're coming up on August, which is when a month where they go on vacation. So there's nothing happening, you know, and mind you, they, the month of July, you know, they're not really doing anything because it's leading up to their month vacation. So, you know, they're just sticking around kind of wasting time for, for what? It makes no sense, you know, and then even with the autopsy report, you know, um, from what my attorney said, all, the only thing we got was the toxicology report. And nothing else, nothing that says the cause of death. Um, and their reasoning was that we didn't need it. Well, how were we supposed to know what happened to him? How are we supposed to trust what you're saying happened to him? Happened? You know, and so that for me is why I can't, I can't trust what it is that they're telling me and why I felt the need to have, an, um, to put out the petition, which, you know, we've actually were able to get the death certificate um, finally, and I think the petition had a little bit to do with that, just the pressure and the the, um, the international coverage on the story here that I was able to, you know, generate from the petition and, and the anniversary of, of his death. So that that is definitely helpful. Things are seemingly moving forward. So, um, yeah. Okay. So with that person that you mentioned earlier who was um... – not in the general population. Uh, I've written a book about that case. We're not, we're not supposed to talk about it on this channel, but just to, uh, I'll say it in, in kind of a safe way. That person, you know, the family demanded an autopsy and the autopsy showed a fracture of the hyoid, which was more along the lines of homicide rather than suicide. Now, if you're not even allowed access to the body, uh, you know, to have an independent autopsy, how can you ever get to the bottom of things? Who has done the autopsy so far and who are they working for? Um, so the, the um, I guess it's the, the local government institution that normally handles these things. They are the ones that have conducted the independent, or not the independent, but the autopsy so far. They're the ones who've conducted it. So the prison, wherever the prison takes, you know, their deceased uh, prisoners, that's where he was transported to, and that's who conducted the autopsy. And is it possible to have an independent uh, medical person do something else, or is that now? Is it is it gone? Is it too much time passed, or what? What's the status of that? Um, that's what we're trying to. Um, work on that's what we've been trying to work on but with their investigation still open um you know it's i, I don't i don't know how that's going to work you know obviously because it's been so much time with there would be difficulty collecting any um accurate information i would assume just that's probably just how things work um but because because i i don't have the autopsy report you know i i you know, I kind of made the decision with my attorney once he explained to me what was happening, um, that, that maybe we should just try to get the autopsy, what they have produced, because um, according to their, their Spanish law, this is something that they're supposed to share. It's not supposed to be something that's withheld. And so, um, you know, if we can't, 
in lieu of of um, not having that information, that's why I thought it was necessary to do the independent autopsy because they don't need to have his body any longer. And so I think maybe they're just trying to find a way to to block that, to, to block an independent autopsy. And I think from what my attorney has explained to me, it's up to their courts here to make that decision, which is also very strange. Um, you know, if I if we if the family wants to do an independent autopsy, I don't see why that would be a problem, especially if they're going to bear the cost of it. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't know. What about U.S. law? What country was uh, John a citizen of? Um, both the U.K. and um, America. He had dual so, citizenship. So, how can Spain hold on to him for that long legally? If he's a U.S. citizen? Yes, this is something that I've been speaking to the attorney about. There's really been no um, explanation other than that this is not normal. This What they're doing is not the normal procedure. And so, um, you know, the only thing the attorney is, uh, feels that he can do is to try to maneuver within the, the bounds of the law. And... Um, try to make something happen that way. I guess that's the only thing that we can do really, you know, um, and, and continue to point out the fact that what they're doing is not their normal procedure. And, and me just trying to share this information with, with the world and kind of just shed some light and maybe they will, um, I don't know, just to pressure them into doing, you know, the right thing, which would be to just release him, you know, just release his remains and, and let us move forward from here. For God's sake, if, if they've got nothing to hide, you would release him. This is, you know, so suspicious. So what motivated you to do the petition? Um, honestly, I was just tired. You know, I'm really emotionally spent. I don't. And I'm just. Um, I was just tired of being quiet and not saying anything and just trying to let the attorney work his angles in the background and it just kept nagging at me that, you know, John would have, you know, he would have come out and said something, you know, he would have been someone that would have went to the press, you know, and tried to get attention on the situation or made noise in some way. Um, but I just wasn't strong enough uh, at the time. And with the anniversary coming up, I just felt that the world needed to know what was happening here and that he still hadn't been laid to rest. And so that was the motivation for the petition and john's lawyer then what was his perspective on this whole situation um in what way what do you mean so like um with the lawyer for the guy who you know they said he'd done something similar in america who was not in the general population that lawyer you know described the certain last meetings he had with that person and his mindset um, did, did the lawyer confirm that, that you know that John was in good spirits and he, he felt like he had a fighting chance of getting out that kind of thing? Um, you know, I honestly I don't remember. I don't I don't recall speaking to him um, after the after John went to court. Mind you, this was during um, the height of COVID quarantining, and so I'm not sure if he was able to to get a chance to meet with John face to face after that. Um, and then, like I said, we found out about, um, you know, him being found in his cell that same day. So we didn't have an opportunity to, uh, discuss 
to discuss that. But I think, to me, the the overall impression of um, John was that obviously the situation was wearing on him physically. Um, it was taxing on him, obviously, but he was very much, um, he still had the fight in him. He was very much encouraged by the additional Spanish attorney that we had hired because he had a more um, focused expertise in extradites, extradition, I should say. And so um, even even with extradition for uh, people to America, so he had, he was very experienced with that. And, you know, once he came on board, John was really, um, I guess I could say reinvigorated with this fight. And he felt that he actually might have um, a real opportunity to have things kind of go favorably for him uh, in whatever way that that meant or whatever way that turned out to be. So people in the in the chat are curious then about John's relationship with the US government, you know, in particular, the CIA, the tax authorities. Could you expand on that, please? Um, uh, well, um, what I know about his um, relationship i guess i'd call it that with the cia is that he you know he did business with them when he initially started his mcafee antivirus or or when it became big i guess um and to my knowledge that's the extent of that relationship i can't speak any further to that and regarding the tax situation i i just honestly feel like the taxes were not as serious as they were made out to be um they claimed that there was fraud, but he hadn't filed in um, eight years, over eight years. So from the time that he came back from Central America and came back to live full time in America, he hadn't filed taxes. He made no secret about it. He um, he wrote letters to the IRS and, and yearly um, and informing them that he would not be filing his taxes and gave the reason why, that he felt they were unconstitutional. So he, um, you know, it wasn't a secret. It, it wasn't a secret to the IRS that he wasn't paying his taxes and that he didn't want to pay his taxes. Even his, in his 2016 campaigning, that was something that he campaigned on, you know, that he believed that, camp, that uh, income taxes were unconstitutional according to the U.S. Constitution. And so... Um, you know, they had all those years. Obviously, obviously, you can say that. You know, you're, there's free speech, and you can feel free to do that. But obviously, there would be consequences. But there were never any. They never tried to seize any of his property, any of his bank accounts. Um, nothing like that. They never sent a letter. They never. Nobody. No one came to the door or came to any of his numerous conferences that he, you know, was would, would speak at. Um, so there. The, the timing of it was just very curious as to, to why they um, decided at that juncture that it was time to do something about it, even though for years he had been speaking very publicly about uh, his disdain for the IRS. And, um, and so when he got arrested, he, there, when he got arrested, from what I understand, they didn't, what John told me, I should say it that way, he told me that there they were detaining him because his passport had been flagged stolen. Not because he had an international warrant. He didn't say that that is why he was detained. He said it was because they said his passport had been flagged as stolen. And then the next day was when this international warrant was, you know, 
it just, you know, materialized. And now he's wanted for, you know, this tax evasion. And so I believe that the additional charges that came from the SEC were just to ensure that he could not escape their their grasp on, on the situation. You know, they had the taxes situation, but it really wasn't that serious of crimes. At the most, he probably would have gotten just a fine and a slap on the wrist. And so I think the additional charges were added on just to ensure that they could um, have him extradited back to America. So Verity has asked whether you were asked to identify John's body. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories online saying that <laughs> saying no, the fact that he's, his body's not been released means that he's, he's been secreted off somewhere and he's still alive. But um, w w were you asked to, to see the body? Um, yes, I was able to, to do that. And, um, so I, honestly, I can understand why people would want him to still be alive because, you know, he's faked medical situations, you know, that's, and that would be so on, on par for John. Um, but because of the things that I know, and just because certain things haven't happened in this year, um, since his death, I don't, I just don't believe that he is alive. Um. And uh, there's no one that wants that to be true more than me. Um, I would love for him to be somewhere, you know, living his best life on a beach with some big booty native girl, you know, feeding him grapes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I just don't believe that that's the case. All right. So we've got just under 10 minutes left. So if you're watching this, viewers, and you've got any questions for Janice, please put them in the chat. And quite often when there's a situation like this, you have to ask yourself, you know, who would benefit from his death? Is that something that you've ever given any thought to? Um, very much so. So John, you know, John and I, we, we had a lot of, um, we had many instances throughout our relationship where there was danger, threats to his life, um, kind of nonstop throughout our relationship. And so I believe that these things stemmed from whatever information he was able to collect from bullies. You know, at least that's what I was uh, led to understand. Um, so what exactly was the extent of that information? I don't know. He's spoken about it numerous on numerous occasions. Um, mind you, he was John McAfee, the antivirus person, the antivirus guy, you know, and you, you in order to create um, the top quality antivirus, you obviously have to know how to break into people's, you know, electronic uh, data, you know, and so that was something that I was very skilled at. And so I don't imagine that he would um, have lied about that. Um, so whatever information he was able to collect, I believe put him in, in great, um, probably in harm's way a lot. And, and, and people felt threatened because he was kind of a loose cannon, obviously. You know, he, he said what he felt. He said what was on his mind. He wasn't afraid to to kind of buck at the system and, and buck at these, um, you know, three-letter agencies in our, in our government that have clear and, and rampant corruption within them. You know, not, maybe not the um, organizations as a whole, but definitely, you know, rogue individuals within the organizations that are, you know, exercising their power for, for malicious intent. And so, um, you know, he, he 
he was he was not um i guess making enemies was something he was very gifted at doing <laughs> and so um you know he, he he understood that and he but he still felt that he needed to speak the i guess i don't want to this saying is so cheesy now but speak truth to power you know um but that's what he wanted to do you know and kind of wake people up up to to what is happening behind the scenes you know um because people are, are so um used to the corruption right and they feel like there's nothing that i can do but i guess the first thing you could do is to do whatever you have been doing differently right you know like if you've been historically voting democratic or republican you know people say voting doesn't work but i but i bet if there was you know john would always say this you know if we elected a, a homeless person it wouldn't be much worse than what we've got now you know and, and it sounds ridiculous but if i mean could you imagine the shakeup within dc <laughs> if we just stopped voting for these career politicians right and we just collectively voted for some random person and and you know what could they do you know and i think that was what the popularity of trump was because people were just tired of of this you know um this corruption, you know, and they wanted someone different. Was he the right guy? I don't know, you know, but he was, he was just different than what we had had. And I think that's what his popularity remains to be. The question that has come in is, have you read Mark Eglinton's book on John? Yes, I have actually. And it's really good. And I, I would um, humbly suggest that you all, uh, if you haven't read it, <laughs> please read it. And it's a really good book. It's a really good way to, um, get to know John in a different way than than you could ever get to know him by what information is out there about him now. He, um, you know, when John when John signed on to work with Mark, they were actually going to be working on an autobiography, and so John really poured his heart out and really spoke to him and and shared you know intimately about his life, and so I believe that Mark's book really reflects that in a very positive way and you and like i said you just get to see a different side of john um separate from the crazy outlandish public figure persona that he's so carefully crafted um and and it's just it's just a, it's just a different version you know a different light of him and i think people will understand a lot better why he felt his life was in danger and why why he may have made enemies within you know um i guess in this elite sort of club of people who, who kind of are behind the scenes running things. And and I, I think it just sheds light on that. So we're just a few minutes left with Janice yeah. and the question that's coming from Kitsy. John said he was going to release information about important matters in the event of his death. Did he manage to get the information to a reliable source? Do you know anything about that? Um, so I w John would have never shared that information with me, obviously, because that's... Um, you know, that would put me in danger. So I would imagine John was very smart and he always planned, you know, 10, 20 steps ahead. So um, I don't think that it will be something that we see like, you know, hey, the information's over here. Like there will be like this big announcement of it. I think we will just see the effects of it, um, of the releasing of the information. Maybe there will be arrests behind the scene or, or, or something, I don't know. But I, that's just my personal feeling and who he would have gotten it to or where it is. I, that's anybody's guess. I'm sure he would have figured out a way to ensure that no matter what happened, it, it would get released. TLR has asked, 
It feels like John was a man who knew too much. Do you think this was the case? Um, very much so. Very much so. And he was no longer controllable. Or well, I don't think he was ever controllable, but I think people were um, were afraid because he was becoming more and more outspoken, especially with his presidential run. And so I think maybe they they weren't it wasn't they felt it wasn't worth the risk of uh, you know hoping that he would he would continue to keep secrets and, and not share certain information all right we've run out of time janice we salute your bravery and everyone in the chat has just been you know totally behind you uh, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers and we will put the link to the petition you know it, it's going to be below this video if people want to go over there um, just thank you, Sean, for having me um, and, and allowing me to share this information. And to everyone that has uh, signed and shared the petition, thank you so much. It may not seem like it's doing much, but it is definitely helping over here in Spain. And I, and I appreciate you. If you haven't signed it, please sign and share it with uh, friends and family. And thank you. Thank you very much, Janice. Thank you, Eric Hunley, for that uh, final message as well. I think that the legend of John made him a target in many ways. All right, you take care, Janice, and we'll get as many people over to that petition as possible. Thanks Thank again. Thank you Cheers. so much, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, we're going to bring Andrew Gold in now, and we're going to move over to guest number two, and I'm going to toggle off and get some veggie bacon down me. So let's bring Andrew in. That was good, mate. Enjoy your veggie bacon. We're going to be talking about that stuff later as well, like the veggie food and all that stuff. I'm a veggie myself, as is Sean. Uh, this is going to be very, very interesting. Just as a reminder to all you guys listening, I'm Andrew Gold from the On The Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. Do come check it out, but you know, not at the expense of watching Sean's lovely, beautiful channel. I'm going to bring on Camila Escalante now. Uh, Camila, how you doing? Hello. Oh, I can't hear you right now. I'm getting a nice thing chats in the comments. Is is your is your is your microphone? Try clicking settings beneath and someone in the chat do tell me if you can hear her and it's a problem on my side. Um can you hear me now? Oh, yes. Yes. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Nice to I see you, well. Andrew. Oh, nice to Good see you. Good evening over Camilla. there. Oh, yeah, it is. It's bloody it's late here. Where are you calling us from today? I'm in La Paz, uh, which is the major city, but not the capital. Um, you know, the government, uh, the, the head of the government center and buildings uh, here in La Paz, Bolivia. And this is where my news outlet, Casachi News, is based. I'm not oh, Bolivian cool. myself, but this is where I do the bulk of my reporting most of the time. How's the air up there? It's very, it's high up. It's, it's notoriously high up. It's an Argentinian football team with Messi <laughs> lost. Was it 6-0 or something like that to Bolivia one time? Yeah, but, um, you know, like a lot of the footballers from Bolivia are actually from lower lands at sea level oh. from other parts of the country. So while it, it kind of works against everyone, both the Bolivian footballers and the international ones, um, but that is the case here in La Paz. Um, and this region is around 3,500 uh, meters above sea level up to 4,000, which is quite high. And it is difficult to do physical activity. Bloody hell. I'm out of breath just thinking about it. Tell us a bit about your background and your news agency and everything. Yeah, well, um, I have been reporting on the ground in Latin America for about five, six years. I'm Latin American myself. My parents are from Central America, but I've been living in, for the most part, 
uh, here in South America, around South America, but I was formerly with Telesur, which is how a lot of people came to know me. And through Telesur, I was able to uh, be based in Quito, Ecuador, in Caracas, Venezuela, and Havana, Cuba. And now uh, during the coup that took place here in Bolivia in 2019, I came to report on the ground, doing some reports for the US alternative outlet, Min Press News, as well as for Telesur and kind of my own reporting as well. And based on that, we decided to launch a whole new outlet because we thought that there wasn't the platform we needed to be able to do the, reported that need, the reporting that needed to be done at that time. Oh, that's cool. And so we're going to be talking today about all different things in Latin America, which is your specialty, of course, uh, starting with, I suppose, the colossal coup failures in Venezuela, including mercenary and terror plots. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is just very much all woven into what, what's happening right now in the world with the conflict that the United States, um, as well as its allies, uh, both in Europe and around our region here in Latin America, as far as the right wing governments who've always sort of tagged along with the United States have come, have come crawling back to Venezuela in search for oil, um, as well as other things, of course. But in Venezuela, we have the same Bolivarian government led by President Nicolas Maduro as we've had all these years, um, including during the height of the attacks against Venezuela's government, the coup plotting, um, and all of the sort of terrorist attacks and everything else that took place largely since 2017. And yet now, as you've seen in the headlines, you know, Washington has been sending official delegations and have been in permanent talks with the Bolivarian government in Caracas uh, since March of this year, uh, just, you know, a month after the, the conflict began overseas. And they're speaking with you know president maduro and his government in search of oil and they're doing so you know <clears throat> kind of uh negotiating around some of the people who they say are uh were arbitrarily or wrongfully detained in venezuela who are u.s citizens and of course there's also alex saab who is a venezuelan diplomat who is being held hostage in the united states having committed no crime uh the crime that they of course, uh, picked him up on was going overseas to Iran and trying to find ways to overcome the U.S. imposed sanctions, which started under President Barack Obama, and to try to bring food and vital necessities to Venezuela. So they're kind of using all these different things and going back and forth. But of course, we've seen a slowdown in the international, you know, media information campaign against Venezuela because it's no longer useful for the U.S. government to be going after Venezuela every single day in the headlines through the New York Times and the Washington Post and everything else because they're trying to negotiate them with them currently because they have no other way to get oil. Um, you know, this is the United States has been plotting these coups against Venezuela since at least 2017 or 2014. Uh, some people might say since uh, Commander Hugo Chavez passed away and Nicolas Maduro took power. And, you know, they wanted to make the Venezuelan or Venezuela in general and its government subservient and a slave to Washington, as are many of the countries in our region. And the Venezuelan people, through their own, you know, struggle, have overcome these sanctions that were imposed by Obama and that were ramped up by the Trump administration. And they've been able to 
lower uh, the you know rate of hyperinflation that we were seeing. They've been able to get some of the vital necessities back in their country. They've overcome you know the waves of COVID that struck the region, and they're getting back on their feet economically. Uh, but during this time, like you said, <clears throat> there have been a lot of coup attempts. Um, and you know the main one that caused a storm was in January 2019 when they tried to install Juan Guaido. And Juan Guaido is a very uh, was a member of the National Assembly. He was elected to the National Assembly in 2015, but he was not known by a lot of Venezuelans, and he was not even a prominent figure of the opposition. Now today, people don't even uh, in the United States and Washington don't even remember who Juan Guaido is. Recently, Nancy Pelosi was asked about uh, the recognition of Juan Guaido and why Guaido was not uh, invited to the Summit of the Americas that took place in Los Angeles, which was this Organization of American States and Biden organized summit where they excluded, of course, Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua. And Nancy Pelosi didn't even remember Juan Guaido's name. So, you know, that was a failed coup attempt. But in that same year, and in the following year, we saw numerous other attempts where they tried to, you know, bust into the country with fake humanitarian aid, uh, you know, wage these sorts of uh, wars and, you know, e escalate things um, from Colombia, mercenary attacks. That was the April 30th planned attack. attack. And that is something that Juan, or sorry, that John Bolton has now admitted more than once, including in his book, having knowledge of these planned attacks against Venezuela, where they tried to use Colombian and US mercenaries to invade uh, Venezuelan territory and uh, assassinate not only the president, his wife, but other high-ranking members of the government in order to install Juan Guaido once again. And it's been a complete failure. Would you, would you suggest um that a lot of the things we've heard out of the news of Nicolas Maduro, who who a lot of us think of as an autocrat or a dictator, are, are smear campaigns. Yeah, it absolutely is a smear campaign. I mean, these are these sorts of headlines, hmm. or for the most part, have been parroting the lines that we've heard year after year from the State Department. You know, whether it's um, a columnist that writes something for one of the major traditional newspapers in the United States or in Britain, uh, you know, they have been using the exact same wording that we have heard from both the CIA and the State Department and the White House. It's not in any way a different take. And those are takes from the exterior. They're being imposed from the countries that believe themselves to be democracies. Um, and, you know, believe themselves to be the leaders in human rights around the world. But by no means are those the takes of actual Venezuelans living in Venezuela who are, you know, involved in, you know, the different actual social sectors of the country and not just, you know, rich people with a platform who are speaking on behalf of their nonprofit and not actually on behalf of any real communities there. So, you know, this has been a propaganda war. And I think it's very clear now it's clear now in the fact that, you know, the opposition has had so many different uh, factions that they haven't been able to come together uh, to really oppose the PSU, which is the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. Um, electorally, they refuse to run any sort of um, internal primaries. They refuse to, to go to elections, whereas the PSU and President Nicolas Maduro's government continue to hold elect elections 
wherein their party and their candidates and leaders and figures participate in every single one, whether they be local, regional, uh, and, and, you know, national elections. So it really says a lot that, you know, the opposition that's the loudest that we hear in the mainstream media and whose faces we see largely live in Bogota, in Madrid, and in Washington and Miami. Mm. But I, I gather that, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, you know, six million Venezuelans have had to flee the country. Uh, 9,000 people were subject to extrajudicial killings. It's, and, you know, obviously the hyperinflation and stuff hasn't been good the last few few years. So there's got to be, I mean, it, 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 some of that stuff is true, isn't it, about Maduro? None of that stuff is true. And it's absolutely, I mean, the premise of that question is absolutely wrong. The framing is wrong. And those are not numbers that are accepted by anyone except the Venezuelan far right and the Organization of American States led by Luis Almagro, um, especially that number um, of extrajudicial killings. I mean, that's absolutely um, unheard of. That is an uh, absolutely bizarre uh, figure to put out there. And I, I know the sort of, sorts of individuals who are behind those, um, <clears throat> those figures, they live in Europe. Uh, they are from the Venezuelan far right sectors and they've never, they have not been in Venezuela in like the last 10 years. And they have kind of integrated themselves in like European society, but they receive a lot of money. This is a career that they have. They have literally built a career um, off of this sort of like transnational criminal organization that they're a part of. We have to remember that since, you know, well, probably since the beginning of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution, when Hugo Chavez came to power, there have been a lot of, you know, sectors on the right, which is a, a large spectrum of people in different political parties who've opposed that government. But over time, it became more and more of a business model that a lot of different people have adopted. And some of these people you know, had some at one time or another credibility among the right wing and right wing voters within Venezuela. A lot of them, you know, became international figures. They started talking about different issues, um, you know, things that they opposed in terms of the Bolivarian government's policies internally. But then, you know, more and more money became available through the State Department and the U.S. agencies, as well as agencies uh, of the European governments that, you know, support mm -hmm. this this wing of, of, the, of the right as well. And this is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a lot of uh, people within Venezuela and even in Miami and Washington from the right wing who were at one point or another perhaps aligned with Juan Guaido demanding accountability for, you know, for where all of this money and financing has gone. They raised at least uh, millions of dollars towards you know, democracy and human rights promotion and helping people within uh, Venezuela, you know, get vital necessities, but the people within Venezuela have not gotten any of that assistance that was supposedly being, you know, handed down from these agencies to the Guaido people. So it does look like it's a great uh, corruption scheme, uh, first of all. And second of all, you know, during, uh, since, you know, the Lima group was installed, which was a pro-coup organization, um, with all the right-wing governments uh, represented within our region and the United States and Canada as well, um, you know, they started stealing um, and withholding some of the assets of the Venezuelan state in different countries, including some of their, um, some of their uh, you know, companies having to do with oil and even banking. And that money has been hijacked as well. And, you know, for what use is it being used to funnel uh, is it being used to potentially fund a future 
um, electoral campaign of the right wing? Is it being used to help um, on humanitarian grounds? I mean, we don't know. That money is missing and it has been missing for years now. Mm. I've got a question uh, from Cara in this on the side, just saying, you know, how do you explain Venezuelans fleeing to other countries? And, you know, I was talking, you know, the millions. I I couldn't tell you how many it is. I mean, I lived in Argentina where not a day went past. I didn't meet somebody who was a doctor or lawyer or something in Venezuela who was now working as, you know, maybe a cleaner or a taxi driver in, in Argentina. And they, they told horror stories about what's going on in Venezuela. So what about those people? Yeah, things got extremely difficult economically due to the U.S. imposed sanctions on Venezuela, particularly in 2016, 2017, and 2018 when I lived there. Um, it was very difficult to find very vital, regular necessities such as hygiene products uh, would be like one of the biggest things. Obviously, if you wanted to do something like make cupcakes or a cake for your sister's birthday party, you wouldn't be able to find some of the very basic ingredients like Betty Crocker mix or whatever it is, um, frosting things and stuff like that to be able to even like host a party. I mean, it was very, very challenging. And, um, you know, there was that. There was also the fact that uh, there was hyperinflation. So beyond items being missing off the shelves, the things that were there were very expensive, such as Coca-Cola or Pepsi products you would pay, you know, just uh, absurd amounts for just really basic things. And on top of that, you know, the the wages were not um, keeping up with inflation. And so a lot of people, you know, who have a lot of, uh, you know, skills and, um, uh, and credentials went to the exterior in those initial years uh, to seek to seek work as, you know, doctors or dentists or whatever else. And as things became harder, um, some some other you know Venezuelans you know younger people young men also went to the exterior to neighboring countries uh, for the most part obviously a lot of people tried to go to the United States but also places like Colombia Brazil and as you said Argentina um, a lot of those people now are going back um, there's a lot of reasons for that but obviously the economic recovery um, and the fact that they're largely adopting the use of the dollar now. And a lot of people, even throughout this period, have been earning salaries in dollars and euros to be able to just survive in Venezuela. For people who weren't able to get these sorts of professional or private sector jobs where they got paid in, in euros or uh, dollars, it was very difficult to live there. And uh, nobody, um, nobody would deny that. But it is the result of this you know, heightened sanction war that sanctioned every bit of economic and social and cultural life of Venezuela, um, I think you know people have learned a little bit more about what uh, what the result of these mm -hmm. sanctions are, but they have never in any way been targeted against what you know the U.S. State Department officials would say target these senior officials of the Maduro government. It's on the contrary, the people who have always been most affected by these sanctions that make it difficult to buy medicine and basic foods um, and import them from the country have been the poorest sectors of the working class. Well, fair enough. Um, I want to move on to Havana syndrome, which is really, really interesting, I, th I think. I mean, it's all interesting stuff. Um, but tell us a bit about what Havana syndrome is i mean some cuban spies and stuff i'm really fascinated by this <clears throat> yeah it became known as the havana syndrome because the first cases that were reported um were reported by these cia functionaries that were stationed in the havana u.s embassy 
um, in 2016. So it's now been six years. Um, since then, uh, other U.S. functionaries of Department of Homeland Security, of uh, you know the what they say is the uh, you know other State Department um, functionaries stationed in other countries such as India have also reported that something took place, some sort of mysterious syndrome, inexplicable to them. Some of them reported, um, you know, problems with hearing, and then, you know, afterwards, problems with their vision and headaches and dizziness. Um, and most notably, I would say, is that a lot of the people who reported these symptoms were in the United States, um, in Washington, hmm. where they're, you know, where they're stationed. They're not actually part of the the foreign teams. And, uh, but because it was like so well known and so promoted actually by John Bolton that it had to do with Cuba, it became known as the Havana syndrome. Since then, they also, you know, started blaming uh, Russia and China for, um, for what they said were, you know, sonic attacks. They said it was, you know, a high powered microwave weapon that could have been used. Um, and these are sort of claims that were made by sort of, you know, experts linked to uh, the CIA. And what, you know, what they were trying to make a case for was to say that, um, you know, a foreign power that has access to this technology, which they say is only accessible to the United States, Russia, and China, um, you know, uh, came and, uh, you know, attacked these different um these different functionaries of the U.S. government, mostly intelligence and foreign service agents uh, during this period. But it's been six years. And in those six years, you know, after the initial um, symptoms or whatever incidents or people said they felt dizzy and they, you know, either stumbled or they were having convulsions in their bed, all sorts of different things reported by different people. Um, there have been different investigations, of course, including internally by the United States, um, and it has come up with very little. One of the investigations was conducted a few years ago by some researchers in Quebec and Canada, and they attributed a lot of the initial cases that they had looked at um, to uh, pesticides, the, the overuse of pesticides at the embassy in Havana saying that what the, you know, the symptoms and the different things that the people had complained about when they went back to their doctors in the United States, uh, you know, kind of fit that description of, you know, oh, you know, use, overuse over time of strong pesticides, which is something that, you know, we do all around Central America and the Caribbean is uh, spray down the different facilities in people's homes because of the different uh, mosquito-borne illnesses. Then a very um, thorough um, expert-conducted investigation took place in Cuba uh, by just a, a large range of, of scientists there that also said that they couldn't conclude uh, that it was any you know, systemic deliberate attack um, and, you know, that was widely published because it was years after the fact um, and nothing was found. And of course, earlier this year, as the CIA director, William Burns, has now said, um, you know, they the, the U.S. released uh, the findings or the preliminary findings of their investigation, which said that they could not actually tie um, what had taken place to, um, let's see what it says, 
that they couldn't, uh, you know, that they couldn't pin this on a foreign player or the Russians, or that it is the result of a sustained campaign on the scale of what has been reported to U.S. personnel to harm them with a weapon or some sort of external advice device. And what they have said is that in the majority of the incidents that they've studied of these people who are supposedly victims, that they could find reasonable alternative explanations for what took place, whether it be previous sports injuries for people who were young athletes at one time, whether it is the use of pesticides or some other explanation, but they can't pin it on a foreign actor. And so, um, you know, I think it does seem like um, in a lot of the cases that there are people who were experiencing some sort of headache or dizziness, but um, whether or not they establish the cause, uh, they'll be getting paid 100 to 200,000 US dollars in compensation approved wow. by the Congress from the Biden administration. So that suggests that it's more than just social contagion. It suggests that the US is in some way liable. Well, I don't think that they're determined to uh, to find a to find an explanation, really. And I think that they're probably just going to end. Uh, you know, we're going to stop hearing about it now that the people are going to be paid. Um, they're just going to. It's just going to go away as it is. It has fallen from the headlines. It was made into a CBS News special on 60 Minutes, uh, where they interviewed some of the supposed victims. One of the people is 30, 36 years old. He, he said he was stationed in Havana. And I believe he was a CIA agent, but he doesn't, he's not named. They show his face and everything, but they don't say who he is. He, they say they cannot reveal uh, what agency he worked for. And he said that he essentially, at the age of 36, was forced into retirement because of, the, because of what he had experienced there. But I mean, at this point, it's the, they have reported this happening in so many different countries. And additionally, Canadian diplomats began to make complaints as well. Um, so I think it's very bizarre uh, that if you know if they were trying to pin it on Cuba at one point or another, then you know the story kind of uh, just got out of control because you had other people in the Trump administration, because of course remember the start under Trump, who were trying to pin it on China and then Russia. Um, and then other countries and, and just trying to develop more conspiracies about this to the point where I think nobody, uh, neither internally in the U.S. can take it seriously. And of course, it's been the story has been rejected internationally. Right. Interesting. We've got about four minutes, three, four minutes left. Give me a little bit about like what what is the example of American aggression that that annoys you the most right now? Well, what annoys me the most right now, I would say, is that, you know, we obviously have a government in the United States now that wants to put all of this emphasis on climate change, on the rights of disabled people, um, on gender and on, you know, inequity and, uh, you know, equality and promoting, um, you know, promoting racial equality and all these different things. And it's really... Um, you know, it, it's really just bizarre how they how how this country that, for example, has just recently um, attacked women on our right to choose whether or not you know to get an abortion in the United States will be going after countries such as Cuba, where people have had access to abortions for several decades, and that's some that's a right that will never 
be rescinded. It's never going to be taken away and it's never going to come under attack in, in Cuba. And so, you know, it, it continues to, you know, promote itself as the number one promoter and the number one, um, you know, ideal example for the world of democracy and human rights, where there's a lot of, you know, backwardsness in the U.S. in terms of their national politics, but also just generally, um, you know, this is a country where a large part of one of its largest, most populous states is on fire right now and has is dealing with a lot of issues of climate change, but also where people are just getting shot up at malls and at celebrations and at schools, and they have the gall to go to other countries and tell us how to govern our countries and run our countries. Um, it's absolutely absurd when you look at all of the different problems the U.S. has, specifically around violence. Um, there's just a high degree of violent crime in the United States that frankly doesn't exist in the places that I've lived in Latin America, particularly here in Bolivia, in Ecuador. Um, I've never experienced the sort of catcalling um, and gender-based discrimination here in Latin America as I did growing up in the United States. Interesting. Interesting. Although I've got friends who say the opposite about our, in being in Argentina, but that's a different part of Latin America, of course. Um, but Camila, that if, very, very interesting. Thank you so much. Just tell us quickly where you'd like to send people, Twitter, YouTube, that kind of thing. Yeah, we tend to promote our stuff on Twitter at Casachin News. And my own Twitter is uh, Camila Press. Um, but you can find our the links to our other stuff from there. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much and have a lovely day. Thank you, Camilla. Camilla was wonderful. Very, very interesting stuff. Learning all about Latin America. Uh, we've got a really interesting guest coming up. I'm going to have to ask him how to pronounce his name. I'm going to bring him on now, actually. And is it Karthik? It's Kartik. An Karthik. easy monomic is car and then tick. There you go. I did think it would be that, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to go with TH with the tongue between my teeth, which we never think about. Sounds like a lisp to people who are not English. It's like we must sound quite lispy. Absolutely. But no worries. I, I've heard every variant. Kartik. Kartik. So, Kartik, where are you talking to us from today? I'm talking to you from sunny California, specifically lovely. the Bay Area, Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Ooh, lovely. Posh University and everything there, isn't it? That's right. So <laughs> I always ask people where they're talking from because I just like, I love it. I love doing this job and being able to sort of see where everyone around the world is and all those things. So tell us just a little bit about your background and, and, and what you do. Yes. So I'm Kartik Shaker. I'm a data scientist at Climax Foods. So Climax Foods is a plant-based food company. And my background is I'm a former scientist in bioengineering, quantitative biology, and I became really interested in the problem of replacing animal agriculture. So I was a researcher right about the time when Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat were starting to make you know, very big headlines. And I myself became very excited for that and actually even tried to do my own project with cheese. And I even tried to you know, raise funding write proposals and so forth. But, uh, you know, I felt like the world wasn't quite ready at that time. This was back mm -hmm. in 2017, 2018. And so I joined one of the exciting startups in Silicon Valley, where I get to work on it firsthand. And separately, I've written a book, After Meat, that argues that we'll actually be able to do better in the long run. 
So I think when most of us think about the transition away from animal products, we see it as an imperative for ethical or environmental reasons. But my argument is we'll actually be able to do, we'll be able to do better. So we'll be able to have better taste, better nutrition, and even more affordability. Oh, that's interesting to know because, you know, because I, I wasn't sure, obviously, the producer Ash puts the show together and I thought you were going to say like lots of negative things about that stuff. I'm a vegetarian myself, uh, as is Sean. And so we're interested in We've got our own. In- there's, I mean, there's the third reason. And obviously, there's like the environment and animal cruelty. And my third reason is is just I feel a bit grossed out once I let myself think about a dead body being in my mouth. And I sort of went my whole life trying to stop, you know, stop myself from thinking that. Just like, don't think about what it is. And I'd never eat something that was like, looked like the chickens. You know, it had to be like mixed up and mushed up. So I didn't think about the animal. But once you let yourself really think about it, it's really hard to go back after that. So, so should we start with like, why animals are fundamentally limited and woefully outdated as a production technology? Sure. I, lo- I love this uh, question. So there are two aspects for why they're outdated. So one is that they just grow very big. And what that means is animals require a fairly extensive circulatory system. So they need, you know, blood to pump throughout their bodies. They need a heart that's continually pumping. And so the circulation provides nutrients to all the cells in their body. And then it also shuttles waste to, to, to their exits. And you can kind of think of this circulation system as just being a, a cost in order to run this animal bioreactor to produce our, our meat, dairy, clothing. And uh, the other reason is that animals just haven't really evolved to, pro- to, to be production systems. So animals evolved to, to walk around, to note who's you know, friend or foe, to be able to just do all sorts of you know, complex activities. And in contrast, uh, one of the technologies that I, I continually tout is microbial fermentation. So, so microbes don't have the same problems in terms of uh, extensive circulation system. They're, they're, mu- they're much smaller. They're you know, so small that we can't see them. They're, they're microscopic. And what that means is they don't need the circulation system. They can actually just uh, pass all their nutrients by a diffusion. And so you, you eliminate that entire cost for, 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 say, producing a meat in a microbial bioreactor. And then, and then they're, you know, a lot more specific in terms of what they can do. They're very good at just making more of themselves or, or producing biomass. And so you can imagine if that we're able to turn that biomass directly into dairy or meat, you're just going to be way more efficient. And just to clue you in on, you know, some of the differences here in terms of numbers, one bathtub, one bathtub sized bioreactor that's doing microbial fermentation can replace about 10,000 cows. So, so that, so, so yeah, I just want to, you know, say it again, one, one bioreactor that we can fit, you know, in our bathroom could replace 10,000 cows. Wow. But I guess, firstly, I just want to say to the people in the the comments, because I know it's sort of, I guess it's sort of triggering to people who like to eat meat and it gets, it's sort of to do with identity and stuff like that. And one identifies as like a a meat eater. And I understand that. And, you know, I get it. And, but I think it is possible. I'd like to think it's possible to listen to another point of view and another way of living without shouting about bugs and <laughs> trying to <laughs> poach it. I, I would just ask that people open their minds and you can still disagree and that's fine. You don't have to agree nobody's going to come and force you to eat bugs or whatever it might be. Um, what might, so, so microbes or whatever. Now that's maybe not going to help me get past the ick factor of like eating a dead animal because microbes make me feel a bit, I, I definitely wouldn't eat bugs and I won't eat, even though I know, you know, you know so what are, my, are microbes little 
disgusting things? What is that? We eat microbes all the time, uh, especially if you like beer, wine, oh kimchi, any 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 uh, any fermented <laughs> food is just uh, rife of you know rife with yeah. microbes. So oh my uh, God. yeah, Fine. so that uh, that cloudy that cloudy you know. I guess a uh, mixture at the very bottom of our beer bottle. That is, that's basically pure microbes. Never East. having a beer again. There you go. Ruined <laughs> beer for me. Um, but I'm particularly, I get particularly, you know, whatever about it. Um, but, but fair enough. So, so, so what, what's the stuff that's, are we currently having? Um, so for example, I'm eating a lot of stuff that I don't even know what it is, but it's fake chicken. It's fake burgers beyond meat. What, where, how is that made? Yeah, it, it depends. So there's a bunch of different methods. I think probably the most familiar ones are what Impossible Foods Beyond Meat is doing, mm -hmm. where they take plant ingredients and they they chemically transform them into you know something that's like a beef burger or a chicken nugget. And uh, so I would I would I would definitely couch that as a large category of uh, of one of these alternatives. There's also more companies doing this, this sort of microbial fermentation based approach. So corn, Q-U-O-R-N, is, mm -hmm. is probably the most uh, well-known uh, food that works this way. So they actually have bioreactors where they actually have these microbes. These microbes are actually tiny, tiny fungi. And they yeah. actually produce uh, mycelium, which is basically that spongy surface on our mushrooms. Yeah. But, uh, you know, obviously characteristic to these specific microbes. And that they're able to fashion that into, you know, say a chicken nugget. And then, yeah, there are companies working on actually taking animal stem cells and then growing them into, say, a full uh, mm. steak or, or, or chicken breast. So, so, mm. so, so many different technologies on the horizon. That's an interesting one. I'd be interested to hear the chat and be open-minded chat, people. Give me a one if you would eat the lab-grown animals. So you'd still be eating a chicken or a, a cow or whatever, but it was just meat of theirs grown in a lab. And give me a two if you just wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Uh, and I don't know how I'd feel because, I, again, I've got that ick factor. It's like eating a dead animal, except it was never really alive, right? The lab-grown ones? Right, right. There was no live animal you know, involved in the direct production of that specific animal product. They're all saying two. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. And no, look, no one's forcing you. I've got, I got, I saw one, one in there, but they, I don't think anyone. Wow, they wouldn't eat it. Oh, I've got Ash, the producer's giving me a two as well. He's, I, I do think. Do you think it's linked to identity to an extent? I think it's something to do with that, isn't it? Yeah, actually, let me just say something. You know, just regarding the egg factor regarding food. So sure. I, I want to point out that most of our food is actually really, really new, right? So think about tomatoes. So tomatoes for actually a really long part of, you know, after they were first discovered were regarded very warily, right? So people realized that they were nightshade, you know, they looked like belladonna and people actually didn't eat tomatoes for, you know, for the first few hundred years after they were quote unquote discovered. And so all the Italian food, all the Indian food, any, any cuisine that you eat that's very heavy on tomatoes it really only came about in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, other foods too, like, you know, shrimp, right? Shrimp is not something that was like, you know, widely eaten across the world, right? Like, you know, you had to, you had to basically have access to people who are actually directly farming it. And what are shrimp? Shrimp are effectively insects of, of, of the sea, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so we, which we is can why totally... I won't eat them. I won't eat shrimp, <laughs> and I used to. And it is, it's probably the tastiest thing I can 
ever imagine just remembering shrimp it was so good but i started to get grossed out by the thought of them being little insects in the sea and i can't eat them anymore yeah yeah and also also cow milk right uh actually oh, no, so it, that. <laughs> on, sorry. uh one of uh someone who's a barista pointed out to me that uh when she was offering cow milk versus say oat milk you know saying cow milk instead of dairy milk People were just like weirded out by that, right? Like, I don't think we think about that. Like, you know, we're we're drinking another animal's milk. You know, yeah. I think if aliens came down to Earth and, you know, <laughs> we're wondering why we did that, you know, it'd be something we'd have to explain and have a have a hard time doing. Yeah, yeah. I think it is a, a lot of people, it's like you said, you know, you get stuck in a certain way and you feel... Uh, a bit tribal and a bit tense and a bit, you know, like people are going to take something away from you. And I keep saying, I don't think anyone is, but people in the comments are still saying they are taking it away from us. Do you envisage a time in the future where people are forced to no longer or is prohibited eating animal meat? I do. Uh, mm. So, so I, I, I do. I realize this is a very controversial take, but okay. uh, in my view, we'll be able to do better in every single way with, uh, with alternatives in the long run. And actually, for purely selfish reasons, we'll actually want to go with alternatives. We won't actually want to do the conventional animal ag, ag version. And, you know, I think at that point, we'll have better sensibilities about, you know, how we treat animals. You know, once we're able to realize we don't actually, you know, need to farm animals, you know, we'll just generally have more empathy for them. And so, yeah, I see, I, I do see sort of like, you know, legal changes kind of ensuing after that as well. Yeah, the empathy thing is interesting because there is that thing, you know, having gone, become a vegetarian, you start to open up to it. And I spent 20 years just going like, I'm not thinking about it, not thinking about it. And then once you do, like I say, it's very hard to go back. I suppose just for balance, a lot of the stuff, you know, that people talk are talking about in the comments, a lot of the anger and stuff, are there bad sides to a lot of the stuff that's being made? People talked about high too high estrogen. I don't know any of the science. So, so let, tell me if there are there problems with a lot of the genetically modified stuff we're eating. Yeah, so it's 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 always going to be a case by case basis. Uh, so 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 of course we want to do our diligence and you know ensure that you know our foods are, are very healthy. But I I also want to emphasize here that like what what we're doing we're not we're not like inventing some like green goo that we're you know injecting into our bodies. We're actually just taking the molecules that we've already been con consuming for you know our entire course of human evolution, right? and just effectively reassembling them in a different way. So you can kind of think of it as, you know, the end result is the same. The The, the way we're getting there is just gonna be different. Right, yeah, I, I guess everything is an ingredient that doesn't come from nowhere, does it? Um, exactly. And you get plenty of vegan and vegetarian sports stars and things like that for people saying, oh no, humans need to eat animals or whatever. I feel I feel exactly the same since I stopped eating meat. And I think Sean would say the same thing. I presume you don't eat meat, you feel you feel all right. Do you do you eat do you eat like insects though? Do you do that? I do not eat insects and yes, I, I don't eat meat. I don't eat dairy. I'm 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 full vegan. And mm. yeah, I, I echo those uh you know same observations. I, I feel great. I feel like I have more energy, you know, since giving up animal products. I, I've noticed, especially with just sort of ex exercising, my recovery periods are just even better compared to 10 years ago when I was in my 20s. 
Mm, so there you go. People don't want to hear that though. And I guess it's associated <laughs> with a lot of woke stuff and all that. And it's not, I don't think it's the same. Hey, what do you think is um, like, I, you know, Bill Gates at the moment is buying up loads of farmland. What's, yeah. what's happening with that? Yeah. So from what I could tell, so one, it's it, so so just knowing Bill and, you know, just how he operates. I don't know him personally, FYI, but <laughs> just, uh, you know, my observations of, you know, his actions. He He's really keen on, you know, doing investments, doing research to, to create a better world. And I know he has a lot of projects related to making agriculture more climate change resistant or at least, uh, you know, getting it ready for the world as, as climate changes. And so my guess is part of this is just, uh, you know, buying lands to try, you know, cultivating crops in a way that does research toward that end. And then, and then the other aspect too, is like Bill, Bill is also, you know, just wants, you know, keen investments. Right. And so, so maybe he sees something with farmland that, uh, you know, hmm. you know, everyone else doesn't in terms of, uh, in terms of an investment opportunity. And uh, the amount of land that Bill actually owns is, is, is still pretty insignificant. So uh, if you're worried about Bill, you know, holding our food system hostage or anything like that, um, you know, he, he's not going to be able to do that. Mm, it's like 0.1% of the farmland in the US, which, which, is, which is insignificant percentage wise, you know, but it's a lot of farmland, I imagine. It's, it's, and especially if we're not going to need it as much in the future presumably you know modern ways of making food outside of animals takes up much less space right yeah uh so actually animals in uh in factory farming context are actually better in terms of like space efficiency right so this is part mm -hmm. of the reason why we have factory farming right if you cram in animals together you know you save less space but interestingly enough, you know, there's this been this big uh, regenerative agriculture movement, animal agriculture movement, which you know, uh, you know, just for the record, I think is akin to clean coal. I, I I don't think it's really something we should invest into that much. It's uh, it actually will take up more land compared to uh, compared to traditional animal agriculture and mm. and factory farming. Yeah. See, that's a negative. Huge negative. Huge negative. This is, and this is in fact, uh, one of the biggest environmental costs to animal agriculture. It's not necessarily just the emissions. It's the fact that animals are so inefficient that we need so much land to, to both, uh, you know, raise them as well as to grow the crops that feed them. Hmm. So, so something like 30% of the ice-free land on planet earth is, uh, is being used to either, either raise animals or to grow the crops that feed animals. And if you actually think about climate change, you know, one of actually the best interventions we have for climate change is, you know, just reducing animal agriculture and just planting trees, right? So we can use trees if we if we have the space for them. Yeah, right, right. And and I I've, I was hearing, you know, that is it around thirty percent of new restaurants open in in London are now plant based. Yeah, something like that. So so my boss had a had a London trip a couple months ago, and he heard this tidbit from someone that something like, yeah, 30% of new restaurant openings in London are 100% are right. plant-based. That's that's fascinating to know things are changing. It's weird. For those listening on the audio and stuff, I'll just say the chat's gone completely mad since we mentioned Bill Gates, particularly in the vegan stuff. People going, I'm yeah. unsubscribing to Sean's show. And it's like, well, you can't like Sean's show that much if, if like one opinion that's a bit different from yours 
it is enough for you to unsubscribe. I just find that crazy. You're allowed to just watch and go, well, I disagree with that. Maybe I'll turn off and watch the next thing. Maybe I'll have a new opinion. You don't have to like unsubscribe to Sean's entire show. It just seems mad. This idea, this conspiratorial idea that everybody's got an agenda who has a different view to you. Like Some people just have different views from you. Is he, you're not getting funding from Bill Gates, are you, Kartik? I am not, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nosferatu is going to remove his Andrew Gold tattoo as well. That's a shame. But he's joking, of course. But I mean, I saw Bill Gates. This is the thing. I know you think he's got, everyone thinks he's got an agenda. Maybe I don't know enough about him, right? But I saw him drink like human poo, right? And is anyone willing to do that, I think, for the sake of the environment? He's got to care a little bit. He had this, this poo. <laughs> he had like um, human poo like, piled up in somewhere and he took all the water out of it. And then he just sort of sat there and drunk it again because it's my ick factor. I'm never gonna drink that. But I don't know. Just, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the I don't know what the thing is. Also, also he's written books. You know, books books don't make any money. They don't they don't really you know you know do anything other than trying to you know help people change minds and you know do good. So I I think you know his his intentions are you know ninety nine percent noble. Yeah. I think so as well. People, well, I, I, people now go in. Do you think he drunk the poo water? I saw him do it. It was on the video. Unless they did some <laughs> sort of weird thing, I literally saw him take the drink the poo water. He drunk the poo water. Um, tell me, I want to know more about. Get off Bill Gates for a second because they've all gone berserk, right? And I don't know whatever. Um, <laughs> what the labs, the lab grown stuff? I'm interested in that because that is quite freaky. Like growing yeah. like a chicken breast. Like at what point is it breathing? Like what is it alive? What is it? It's uh well, so it's not going to be conscious, you know. So yeah. so I, I I guess it depends on the def definition of alive. Like is it going to be like there's going to be some active metabolism in it for sure. Mm. But uh but yeah, it should there should be no consciousness associated to it. Oh my god! Okay, it still is quite creepy. It's like Margaret Atwood stuff. That really, she's <laughs> written about that, like headless chickens being grown and all that. Would and you, would you have your presumably? Would you enjoy that then? Because presumably you've gone some time now without eating like chicken and stuff like that, and it would be a way to get back into it. I would try it. I don't. Yeah. So I don't have any hangups with it ethically, which is which is the reason why I don't eat animal products. So yeah, if if given the opportunity, I would absolutely try it. Hmm. Okay, interesting. I, th I guess like one of the issues I suppose people might say is like, this is all, you know, well and good for the US or some of the richer Western countries. Uh, but you know, what about impoverished countries and things like that? They can't, they can't be getting any of this stuff. What, what do they do? Yeah, so I, I, I do think this technology definitely has the potential to actually democratize and actually make a lot of the, the meat that, uh, you know, first world countries really seem to be privileged to enjoy you know, just, just much more widespread. So I actually see these technologies as eventually just, you're just making protein rich foods much, much cheaper and much more affordable. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so, and what, what's the next thing to change? Like the next is, are there like new things on the horizon that are going to just like blow people's minds? That's like in the next couple of years, like, like I'm going to go to the supermarket and be like, what? I can't believe that, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. So we're actively working on plant-based cheeses, and uh, you know we, we've we hope to you know come out to market. I think by the end of the year or within the next year. And you know I think you know obviously I'm biased, but I I, I think mm -hmm. we've done a really good job. And 
you know, the vegan cheeses that are out there, you know, have gotten better, but, you know, still are nowhere close to parity with, uh, with the dairy-based counterparts. Yeah, those so are I think the worst we'll see... bets, the cheese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think we'll continue to see, you know, evolution on those things. I think, uh, you know, the burgers, I think just, I think really everything is just going to continually get better. You know, we saw this with the Impossible Burger. You know, there was, there was the v- version one that came out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, five years ago, which was, you know, pretty good, but... You know, I think my meat eating friends rated it a six out of ten on, uh, you know, the the hedonic scale, and they came out with version two, which, uh, you know, I I think went up a couple of points, and I know they're they're constantly iterating on it. Oh man, I went out the other day um, in Bristol where I live, and they've got quite a lot of plant-based places. And I took a friend of mine who's Argentinian, and they love their meat, and he's very proud, a proud meat eater. But he forgot that I was vegetarian, so he just grabbed my burger and had a bite of it because he just didn't have his own, or I don't know, he wanted to taste it. And he starts like shouting, like, "Oh my god, oh that's the best burger I ever! Oh, I can't <laughs> believe it! Oh!" and all this stuff. And I said, "Like, it's not, it's not meat, mate. It's not." And he wouldn't believe me he got the waiter over he was asking like this is meat isn't it and they're going no it's not um and that was great and then obviously because he's stubborn like an hour later he was like actually you know the more i think about it, it, it i don't now that i know it wasn't meat i don't think it was good because in his mind it had to be meat for him to have enjoyed it or something but um yeah i guess the problem i mean the reason i won't go or haven't gone vegan yet is because yeah the cheese is not yet there so I'm really mm-hmm. interested in, in following what you guys are doing. And then it's also, yeah, dairy and the cakes and things like that. So you, do you, you really think in the next few years, even like cakes and things are going to be right at that level? I think so. And, and I actually even predict they'll be better. So the experience uh-huh. that your friend had, we're, we're going to yeah. see more and more experiences like that. Yeah. And, and I, you know, maybe, maybe one, another note that I just kind of want to leave people with that I think is really mm-hmm. important so I think I think the notion is that you know replacing animal products is going to be kind of like a knee replacement, right? It's never going to be as good as the original, and you know we're, we're going to want to like forestall it as long as possible. I think the analogy that we really want to focus on is replacing animal products is going to be like going from donkey carts to electrical vehicles. So it's it's not, and actually in my view, it's not actually going to be because we pr- reproduce things that we do the transition, it's actually gonna be because we do things better. We're gonna like have foods that we're actually, Andrew, you and I are not currently conceiving right now that uh, you know that we're just gonna be able to create because we're no longer confined to this inefficient animal. Yeah. And that's the future in my view. So uh, we're gonna have these, these foods that just, you know, are unlike anything that we have today and just are way better than anything we can do with an animal. I'm really excited for that. I think one of the things that really grossed me out the most when I used to eat meat was all the the fatty bits you'd get and all those, which you don't get in like a however they make those burgers. How, how do you make, how do you even start, think in a layperson way, if it's possible to explain, going like, okay, we're going to create cheese that is not yeah. anything to do with an animal? Yes, it's it's honestly, you know, a lot of art, you know, so it's it's a lot of like trying things and, you know, and, and, and figuring out like, okay, you know, we think we can improve the flavor, you know, with this ingredient, we think we can get better texture, you know, with this, this plant ingredient. And of course, like, you know, my company, we, we try to take a little more of a scientific data science approach and, you know, trying to effectively reduce the search space so that we can iterate much faster. But really it is just a ton, a ton of iterating until, you know, we have something that's good enough. 
yeah well i can't can't really imagine it just being in the lab and just yeah all this like weird stuff putting it together and it tastes like cheese in the end i suppose the one thing i do miss the one thing i miss more than anything is like going for a barbecue back in you know in argentina and having a steak and they love their steaks there and having it sort of medium rare but and, and i haven't yet seen that i've seen burgers but i haven't seen are there sort of steaks out there that are really good yeah so uh the the Cultivated states, I, th- I think, still have a long way to go. Actually, so there's this microbial fermentation company, Meaty, where they mm. actually fashion a steak out of microbial biomass. And uh, I've gotten to try something that's kind of like it. It's actually been like the best texture I've had in a you know a non-cow steak alternative. And uh, I think you know, I, as I understand it, it's really good. And, you know, they, they raised a bunch of money recently. And part of that is to, to basically fund their commercialization and expansion. So I think you'll see their product out pretty soon. Really interesting. Kartik, where do you want to send the, the people who are on board with, the, with what you're doing? Sure. Uh, so my website is aftermeatbook.com. And uh, my Twitter is kslearns, but I'm, I'm not really that active on Twitter. Actually, probably LinkedIn is actually the best way. So feel free to go to my website. The book is actually free. So you can actually download the audiobook or any digital version completely for free. I don't want money to be an, uh, a reason that someone can't access. And finally, I just want to say all the proceeds are going to charity. I'm, I'm very excited to see this transition happen. And so I hope uh, I hope everyone will will support it. Oh, thank you, Kartik. You've been wonderful. Really, really fascinating stuff. And have a lovely day. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. Cheers. Oh, everyone's so angry. Everyone's like, I swear, when I watch stuff, maybe I don't, maybe I do get angry. When, when there's like someone saying a thing that's completely the opposite to how I feel about something, I just try, I sit there and go, okay, it's someone who has a different opinion to me and wants to live a different way. I do think it's hard life, you know, the 7 billion people. I often say, you know, I often say or think it's hard enough when you're just out with your your girlfriend or your wife or your friend or whatever it might be on holiday to decide what you want to do for dinner or where you want to go out and stuff like that. So imagine trying to do that for 70 million people in a country or 7 billion people in the world. We all just have really, really different ways that we want to live, how we want the world to work. And... It can trigger us um, and make us stress out and worry when we hear that other people have a different way. And we worry, well, crypto beauty says we're not trying, we just want you to wake up to a diff- an agenda. Well, that's very possible, but that's just you because a lot of people were angry. A lot of people were just, I'm leaving and all that. And if you say there's an agenda, I'll sit and go, okay, well, I'm, I'm listening. That's interesting. I, I And you know what? I'm being unfair because a lot of you weren't that angry and you are just throwing facts as tina says that's fair that's fair enough i'm talking to the minority who do just get angry and get out and unsubscribe and all this mad stuff i just think you know somebody like that is not ever going to be open to listening to the other sides so there you go veggie i'm just reading some of these things the bill gates stuff look it's very possible that he's got all this sinister stuff but you know I'd, it's very difficult to prove. I guess people would say, oh, no, I'll prove it. Well, fair enough. We've got a couple minutes until our next guest. Sean, do you want to come? Does Sean want to come on and have a little chatter? Yeah, absolutely. So the next guest, we're going over to our royal family expert, Norman Baker. And Andrew, how do you personally feel 
about Harry and Meghan <laughs> being, in, being invited to Balmoral by the Queen. Uh, I've just gone on a lecture about how you shouldn't get angry when people disagree with your views. Uh, and now I'm on, angry about Meghan. Bloody Meghan. I hate her. I hate her. How dare she come along and make a podcast and get paid millions by Spotify and then only do one episode in six months and still think that she's holier than thou. Meanwhile, Sean and I are sat here working our hairy backs off. You know, and we don't get that kind of money that she gets just for sitting there and marrying someone. Does my head in. And I don't want it to sound, you know, any kind of sexist or whatever, because she's a woman and this and that, because Harry's awful. They're all awful. Why would you marry into that fact? Because I don't think it looks that much fun apart from the money. So what do you think about that, Sean? Can we do a poll? Let's do a poll. Yeah. On. On. Yeah. Put a one in the chat if you believe that Meghan never Googled the royal family. Put a two in the chat if you believe Meghan did sneakily Google the royal family and knew loads about them. <laughs> but, but for some reason, wanted to withhold that information from everybody. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just the whole thing. And it annoys me that I end up talking about her because she's not worth, and he's not worth any of it. And you know what? Someone pointed out, I can't remember who it was, someone pointed out on Twitter the other day that, you know, you've, 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 they've both gone from like royals, like royal couple, to really, they now are just sort of like a, they're basically like Love Island. They're just sort of like a little couple of 15-minute window of fame B-listers. They definitely seem like B-listers now, don't they? I know we're talking about them, but... Do you know what I mean? If I love, getting... I love, <laughs> <laughs> I love how your lips snarled when you said that. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you had a choice between getting Sean Atwood and A-lister on your podcast, or you could get Megan on, what to talk about? What little B-lister rubbish? <laughs> what a fall from grace? Not and on that note, had grace. On yeah. that note, here's Norman. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm out of here, Norman. Lovely to see you, Sean. Thanks, Andrew. And I'll um, I'll see you all in a bit. Adios, thank you, Andrew. Hey, Norman. Before we get into the royal latest, what um, can you just reintroduce yourself to those who are not familiar with your works and your oeuvre and your books? And how, what do you do? Uh, well, I mean, um, how long have you got? Um, Norman Baker, um, former government minister, former MP, author of three books, one about the death of David Kelly, one which was a political memoir called Against the Grain, and one which I guess you're interested in called, and what do you do? What the Royal Family don't want you to know. And we did a, a video on the death of David Kelly on this channel. I would urge people to watch it. It is fascinating and it links to the biggest crime families and weapons industry stuff in the world. So, the news, uh, news report is that the Queen is going to invite Harry and Meghan to Balmoral. What's that about? Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, what's it, well, we don't know definitely she's inviting them to Balmoral. I mean, there's not 100% certain. But I guess if she is inviting them to Balmoral, then it's either because she wants to see the great-great-grandchildren before she pops her clogs, or it's because she thinks the last thing she can do is try to reconcile Harry and Meghan with the rest of the family and try and, you know, do that as her last act. One of those two things, or both of them, maybe. 
So do you think it's a PR move if she does? I don't think it's a PR move. I think she's doing what she thinks is either what she wants to see the great-grandchildren or I think she wants to try to do what she thinks is to mend fences. But if William and Kate aren't there, which is the main problem, then there'll be no fences made. Mended, I mean. So what's Charles's attitude towards Harry and Meghan these days? Do we know? Well, we, the general view is he just feels uh, bewildered and disappointed and uh, not able to influence Harry, who I think he probably believes has been kind of succumbed to Meghan's magic. And what kind of king will Charles make? Well, this is the thing. I mean, because if you look at the the opinion polls, the opinion polls for the Queen are quite favourable. Uh, and I think Charles makes the mistake of assuming that the favourable ratings for the Queen are favourable ratings for the monarchy, which they aren't. And whereas the Queen has been perceived, and I say perceived, to have not put a foot wrong in 70-odd years, uh, my book will say she has, but if she proceeds not to put a foot wrong in 70 years, the same is not true of Charles, who will come to the throne with a great deal of baggage, whether it's about the way he treated Diana, whether it's about his uh, attempt to improperly influence government ministers through the spider letters, whether it's an attempt to be really quite grasping in terms of money, I'm afraid, more than most members of the royal family, or whether it's a matter which is outstanding, which I reported to the Metropolitan Police and are subject to a criminal investigation relating to uh, the apparent offer of uh, help with citizenship and uh, an honour, a peerage, for a savvy businessman who might contribute to his good causes. And of course, we've seen recently Prince Charles receiving uh, bags of, uh, of money in dollar notes or euro notes uh, for his good causes. Uh, the Charity Commission looked into it, but they've decided it's a suitcase closed. We've, we've got a unique opportunity to ask Norman Baker questions. Uh, Matthew Steeples is kicking this off right now with what does Norman make of Tom Bower's book, New and Exciting or Regurgitated Old Rubbish? So please put your questions for Norman in the chat. Um, the answer is I haven't read it yet. I've only read the extracts in the paper. Um, it appears to, well, he's got some new information and he's got more tittle-tattle. I don't mean to say that rudely because Tom Bower is a, a proper author. Um, he's got more He's got more anecdotes than we knew about. But I don't think he, he fundamentally changed the story about how Harry and Meghan relate to each other and to the royal family. I think he corroborates that, really. Nicky Stedman has asked, where are H&M moving to? Well, I mean, I don't know where they're moving to. I mean, they've kept at least on Frogmore Cottage. Uh, they're still where they were in California. Um, if they're that worried about security, they ought to come back here. I've always found it rather strange that uh, H&M, who don't own the shop of the same name, of course, uh, of H&M, uh, are apparently worried about security for themselves in this country, when actually, uh, really looking at the statistics, there's far more danger of being shot in particular in the United States than there is in this country. And, of course, originally we knew about two intruders at their place in California. So, really, that seemed to be rather peculiar and, and not a logical conclusion for them to reach. Um, however, uh, I'm just sure Meghan wants to stay in the States, and therefore, no doubt, Harry will stay there with her. Charles wants... Uh, Fro sorry, Fred wants to know, 
Uh, how close were Charles and Lord Mountbatten, and was that a good or a bad influence on Charles? Uh, Charles was very close to Lord Mountbatten. Uh, I think he regarded him as a as a sort of father figure. I don't think he got on with, with Prince Philip very well as his real father. And I think Lord Mountbatten guided him. I think uh, from, from memory, it's in my book, I think Charles actually wrote to uh, Lord Mountbatten when he first made a kill. Because, of course, you all go shooting and hunting and explain what um, a thriller had been. I think that was the Lord Mountbatten. And certainly he was very cut up, uh, Charles, when Mountbatten was finally murdered. Uh, I forgot the year. It was 79, was it? The IRA. And he was very cut up by that. So I think they were very close. Charles, of course, had a difficult childhood. Uh, Charles was a sensitive person. And really the worst thing that could have happened to him was send him to that ghastly place in the north of Scotland, Gordonstone, which may be okay if you are going to be a soldier or something, but none of you are of an artistic nature as Charles was, and I'm sure that's really quite damaged him in his life. Tim has asked, if Norman became King Norman I, what would his first royal decree be? I would abolish the monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> Joanne Taylor has asked, does Norman have a comment to make about Harry speaking at the United Nations? Well, look, I mean, I tend to agree with what he says, and I agree with what Charles says about climate change, but they totally and fundamentally undermine their case by the way they behave themselves. Uh, and for British people in particular, they will look at what Harry and Charles do with their own behaviour and say, this is hypocritical. You know, Harry and Charles, each of them, is probably in the top 1% of polluters in the world, personally, by their by their carbon footprint, by their extensive use of private jets. Uh, Harry's just got himself the biggest, I think Autocar described as the biggest car in America. I mean, they seem to be oblivious to their own behaviour. So I don't think we really want to be lectured by people from California about climate change who are causing major problems themselves. Billy would like you to tell him what will make him want to buy your book. Uh, it's jolly good value and it's got lots of interesting facts and it's terribly well written. <laughs> Mark Wilson, is there a Freemasonic Lodge in Kensington Palace? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the Duke of Kent is supposed to be the country's leading Freemason. Um I think he's in, I've forgotten, I read all about this many years ago. I think he's in the third degree or something. But then someone said to me there are 31 degrees. We don't know about the ones above that. Um, I remember, if I could just anecdote, give you an anecdote. I remember when I was a local councillor, I put down a motion for the council to uh, require all members of the council to declare they were Freemasons or not. I thought we ought to know. And, uh, of course, the Conservative ruling group at the time was furious about this, but the chief executive advised them that of course he could vote the motion down, but each of them who was a Freemason would have declared interest for the motion on the paper. So we found out who they all were anyway, because they all declared, them and then, uh, declared their interest, and then they all voted the motion down, we knew who they all were. And interestingly, they were all Conservatives, the Freemasons, but hey, there we are. <laughs> Inside information there. Nigel Phillips, do you think we are in the end game for the royal family? I think it's touch and go, uh, and I think uh, it will depend on what Charles does in his first couple of years, because uh, when the Queen dies, there will be a great deal of outpouring 
of sympathy for someone who's been around for such a long time. Uh, and the period will be full of um, recollections and, and, and the popularity of the monarchy will appear to increase at that point. Now, Charles can do one of two things. He can use his new position to introduce reforms to the royal family, which are centuries overdue, frankly, centuries overdue, and modernise it and make it like one of the bicycling monarchies in the Benelux countries and the, and the uh, Scandinavian countries, because we are the last imperial monarchy in, in, in Europe. And if he does that, he will stabilise the monarchy for a long time to come. If, however, he uses the sympathy for the Queen as a blanket to improve his own position, which he may well do, because at the beginning of each reign, uh, the new the new king or queen has to do has to reach an agreement with the treasury of, over funding for that reign. Uh, if he abuses that position and the indication so far as he will, based on his past experience, he will try and accumulate as much money as possible for himself and for the royal family, very unwisely. If he does that, then that will become apparent. And when the goodwill for the queen is worn off and he's left there naked, as it were, then he will be in a very vulnerable position. So it's in his own hands. I have to say that um, kings with the name Charles don't have a great record in this country. Charles I was beheaded in 1649 by Cromwell. And Charles II's reign, uh, he managed to include um, the plague and the Great Fire of London. Um, so, but Charles, there's a rumour that, Char that Charles will want to be King George VII for that reason, which most people would find extraordinary, I think. So, what's the procedure to, to just have that named? Is it on your when you get sworn it's up in? To him. Uh, what happened when 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 George VI died? Um, uh, Elizabeth was asked, uh, "What name do you want to be known by?" And she said, "Well, Elizabeth, of course." She was She found the question extraordinary. But he will be asked that on day one, as soon as as, as soon as he becomes king, as it were. And it just becomes law if he says, I would like to be called, you know, Herbert the Seventh. Well, it's not so much a law. It's just, um, I mean, you can call him what you want, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it's just his choice. I mean, it's anyone's choice what they're called, I suppose. But it would be extraordinary, I think. And, you know, historically, kings have, kings have not been called what they, what they are. Um, George VI was actually Albert. And he took the name George because that was one of his middle names. Uh, Edward VIII was not Edward. Um, you know, people actually, the history of monarchs not taking their first name. But do you think that's an anachronism? The whole royal family's an anachronism, the way it behaves. <laughs> um, so that's just one part of it. I mean, they do they do actually kind of live in the past, uh, and this is part of the problem. <laughs> All right, I don't know if you've got any inside information on this, but Terence has asked, is the upcoming Savile biopic going to cover the royals? Well, it should do, because... Uh, Jimmy Savile was um, very close to Prince Charles. Prince Charles, uh, I, I don't think in any way guilty of what Savile was guilty of. Let me be very clear on that. But Sav uh, George, uh, but um, Charles, almost a George VII, Charles uh, showed extraordinary bad judgment in people he associated with, whether it's Jimmy Savile, whether it's the Bishop of Lewis, who turned out to have been guilty of abusing boys, one of whom committed suicide, uh, whether it's these dodgy financiers who wanted photographs with Charles uh, and, and turned out to be crooks because there were some of those. He doesn't have very good judgment. And he won't listen to people. And if anyone gives him advice he doesn't like, then they're cast out of his inner circle. He behaves like a medieval 
monarch in that sense. So the Savile thing should cover Charles because they were very close. Jimmy Savile, incredibly, advised Charles and Diana on their wedding, on their marriage, rather, their marriage. He also uh, was involved with Charles and Camilla. Though in this case, I think Jim didn't fix it. <laughs> Which uh, ties into the next question, but let me just tell the viewers, we're going through the questions fast. Keep throwing them at us. We've got plenty of time to get all your questions to Norman. And the next question is from Anexus. Does Norman think Charles was aware of what Savile really was? Um, he was aware in the sense that he was warned about it and he was told about it, but he didn't believe it. He thought it was jealousy uh, that was um, causing these things to be said. Who warned him? Well, anyone around him, people warned him, all, all his circle warned him. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, a good influence, uh, and he, that was made clear to him. And he believed it was jealousy coming through. He actually went to went to dinner in Jimmy Savile's cottage, where it was in Yorkshire. He gave him, I think, I, I can't remember exactly what he gave him. It was in my book, but I think it was a pair of cufflinks um, shortly before Jimmy Savile died. Uh, and he and Camilla led the tribute to Jimmy Savile when he died. This is all very embarrassing, but you know, when we're looking back at the royal family, we should see these things as well as all the kind of glittering and gold that's around the place. Um, <laughs> Nosferatu is proposing an alternative, Charles. Here, does Norman think Charles Bronson will get released from prison? And if so, would you vote for him as PM? Well, I mean, I have no idea about Charles Bronson. I'm not my specialist subject, but I wouldn't <laughs> vote for his. Well, first of all, we don't vote for PMs. This is the thing that Boris Johnson. Says Boris Johnson said he got 14 million votes or something, whatever he got. He didn't. We don't have a presidential system in this country. We have a system where people vote for their individual MP, and then MPs co come together as a party, decide who they want to lead them. So we don't have a presidential system. So I wouldn't vote for. No one can vote for Charles Bronson. Apart from anything else, he's not British, is he? So he wouldn't couldn't be couldn't be prime minister. But we don't have a system, and let's not ever have one where one person gets a vote like that because. If you do have that, you end up with people like Boris Johnson permanently. We don't want that. Cat wants to know whether you're working to abolish the monarchy now. Well, I'm working to draw attention to their inadequacies, the inappropriate way in which they behave, uh, the way they skew our constitution, and the way they hold Britain back. Um, and particularly the way they rip off the country through the financial arrangements which apply. And then people can make up their own minds as a consequence of that. But... Um, they can either conclude, I hope, that either the monarchy is passed at sell-by date, or they can conclude it needs radical reform. What they shouldn't conclude is it's okay the way it is, because it certainly isn't. Seagull <clears throat> wants to know what you think of conspiracy theories um, that claim that the royals are descended from reptilian bloodlines. Well, I've seen no evidence of that. Um, <laughs> can I just say on, on, uh, on, the, on, the, on, the word on the phrase conspiracy theory, you know, conspiracy theory is a phrase thrown at people to discredit their argument, i.e., you know, we don't have to deal with the argument you're making. Uh, we're just going to rubbish you and attack you personally and undermine your credibility. So I don't particularly like that phrase in any circumstance. Good. Neither do we. We prefer conspiracy researcher. All right. So Scott is wondering, how can people support this ultra-rich, privileged family that does nothing but live lavishly in front of struggling working people? It's celebrity worship and disgusting. Any thoughts on that? Well, the media don't help, do they? Look, I mean, uh, again, sorry I keep saying it's my book, it is, but in, in 2011, 
The civil list for the royal family was 7.9 million, not including security and other bits and pieces. Last year, it was 83.5 million. This isn't 10 or 11 years. This is the time when everybody else has been tightening their belts. They've been ripping the country off. And the reason that's been like that is because Charles in particular argued for a change to the way the formula was made in order to increase the amount of money the royal family got. And the government of the day, successive governments actually, have got along with that. And I just find it personally insulting that some of the richest people in the country can argue for even more money while other people are suffering and scraping, you know, to, to make ends meet. But hey, maybe that's because I'm a bit lefty. Three two two is wondering whether Norman has anything to say about Mount Batten's photo book in the British Museum that allegedly has indecent images in it. I don't know about that. I mean, I know there was a uh, uh, there's been a battle going on to make sure the Mount Batten papers were released, involving a, a um, an academic in Southampton, um, and the papers that had been available were subsequently made secret again. And he's fought a long battle to get those papers released, most of which have been released, but at vast cost to him. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pounds from people trying to stop that from occurring. All right, next one is from Cat Sand. Who was the first royal? How was that person determined a royal? And is the royalness henceforth genetic? <laughs> well, who was the first royal? I have no idea. I mean, it goes back... <laughs> <laughs> millennia i mean it, it was it was probably someone who fought everybody out killed everybody else out of the way or just said uh, right i'm in charge and dared anyone to criticize them i mean that's how it was that was how it arranged but then you know that's how they behaved down the years i mean why do you think we own all these royal parks or the all these royal parks because henry the eighth or someone put their head out the window and said that's mine i'm having it and thereafter it was royal and that's the way it works is it genetic well i mean is it hereditary of course, that's the whole point about the royal family. And the, the point about hereditary principle is you don't know who you're going to get next. You can get someone who is dull and diligent, like George V, or you can get someone who's basically a Nazi, like Edward VIII. I mean, you know, you don't pick, pick and choose. That's the whole point about a hereditary principle. Whereas a democratic principle, you can at least choose who you want. Mark Wilson has asked, is the Crown a corporation and does it have any involvement with the Bank of England? Is it a corporation? No, I don't think so. No, I mean, the, 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 royal, the crown has got a most peculiar legal status. I mean, we are subjects in this country, not citizens. And technically, everything is done in the name of the Queen. Uh, all the actions of the government are done in the name of the Queen. Now, in theory, the Queen can veto anything at all. But uh, if the Queen did so, there'd be constitutional outrage. And the last King who vetoed something it was, I think, George II, way back in 1750 or thereabouts, that sort of time. So the Queen has a huge amount of theoretical power, but on, on paper, not much power. However, they've got tremendous influence behind the scenes, uh, which is inappropriate, not least of all because it's not public and we can't see what they're doing. And that definitely needs to be corrected. Um, and part of it is about making the royal family properly accountable through the Freedom of Information Act, making sure their wills are published, which they aren't, uh, and making sure their lobbying of government is published, which it isn't. So there's a whole lot needs doing to, to sort that out, to be honest with you. 
We've got just under 10 minutes left for your questions for Norman Baker. Please get them in now. We are going through them fast. We are going to get to all of your questions. Uh, we are also going to be talking about the race for PM in the final minutes as well. But here's a, another one from Matthew Steeples. What does Norman think of the Duchess of Sussex's closeness to the House of York versus her acrimonious relationship with the House of Cambridge? Well, I mean, I think the the um, it's, a, it's a it's a non-position in the royal family to be uh, where you are in the in in the line of succession that Harry is, because what the the royals have done over the centuries is to you breed someone who is going to be the next in line, and then you breed another another couple in case one one of them dies, and then historically what would have happened was. The second in line would have joined the army or become governor general of Australia or something. Uh, and the next one would have gone to the church. You know, well, that's kind of how it worked. It doesn't work that way anymore. And if you have someone like Harry, who's got, um, well, he's, he's absented himself, obviously, but he's got no formal position. Now, I think that he probably resents, as Andrew does, actually, being kind of demoted. I mean, Andrew has gone down the charts because uh, when Andrew was born, he was second in line to the throne after Charles. Um, and then as soon as Charles's children come along, you know, Andrew goes down the charts. Um, and the same will be with Harry. And Harry's now a kind of bit player who's not needed because Charles had got children. And this is how they think. So obviously that's caused some resentment and, and leaves you, if you're Harry, in some sort of limbo, which I think Meghan has probably exploited. Um, I understand that they are quite close to Andrew's children. I don't think they're necessarily close to Andrew uh, very much. I'd be surprised if they were. I suppose if anyone's close to Andrew, to be honest with you. We've got a bit of a sarcastic one here from Fred. Will Rolf Harris be doing any more royal portraits? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have no idea, but um, yeah, I'm sure there's a funny answer to that. But uh, I'm sure it involves two little boys, but I better not go there. <laughs> Ray J, we're crossing over to Boris now, but we will still take royal questions if you've got anything on your mind. Ray J, will Boris be the next NATO leader? Well, I don't know, but I, I think it'd be completely disastrous. Look, I mean, whatever you think about Boris, Boris is completely narcissistic. Narcissistic. He's like Trump. That's how you have to see it. He is a, someone who is only interested in looking after himself. The only consistent factor about Boris Johnson as Prime Minister has been his own personal interest. And that's shocking for a Prime Minister. I don't think any Prime Minister before him has been like that. There have been Prime Ministers I thought were good and Prime Ministers I thought were bad. Uh, and that's not a party point because there's been good Tories, bad Tories, good Labour, bad Labour. But they've all, I think, done what they think is right for the country. Boris Johnson has only done what's right for himself. So uh, if he's put in charge of NATO, that would be a complete disaster. Boris should be sent off to be Governor General of South Georgia. What actually got rid of Boris? I mean, what, well, what, the Tory party got rid of Boris. Um, but, but they've been trying for a while, haven't they? What was the tipping point? Well, the tipping, well there's a number of tipping points. I mean, one was obviously the, uh, the succession of by-election results, which, um, which were disastrous for them, all with them gains of very safe seats. Uh, then there was a privileges committee which looks like they're going to find him guilty of misleading Parliament. Um, there's a way he... It's just one thing after another. You know, Owen Patterson, uh, the party gate. You know, and, there's some, and, and I think the, the tipping point, if you like, um, Sean, was the fact that they think he's no longer going to win the election, which I think was right. I think he was regarded after the by-election of losses to the Lib Dems as no longer a vote winner. And actually, for the Tories, that's more important than the ethics of it, probably. 
who's going to be the next PM? Well, it looks like Liz Truss. Um, uh, I'm slightly alarmed about that because if you if you found someone sent me a, a clip on tip, TikTok where Liz Truss and I in 1994 were speaking at Lib Dem conference arguing for the abolition of the monarchy. Well, I haven't ridiculously changed my mind on that, but she apparently has. I'm also alarmed by the fact that she's got the same birthday as me, which was yesterday. So um, I hope there's nothing else we've got in common. But anyway, I think she'll win because uh, the electorate, uh, let's be remember this, the electorate is not point not not 3% of the population, i.e. the Tory party mem and membership. Uh, they will choose her, or sit with she, I suppose, and they will choose her, and they are by and large well off, by and large the south of England, by and large elderly, and by and large quite right wing, and more so than the MPs. And what's happening is that the two candidates, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, are conveying messages to suit that tiny electorate, not the public at large. Uh, and Liz Truss is probably more right wing than Rishi Sunak. So, um, I mean, he's grown up in the room, if you like. I mean, she's not, but I think she'll she'll win and I think they'll regret it. Of course, Boris Johnson thinks, so apparently, that she'll be such a disaster, people will be clamouring for him to come back before the next election, which I think is delusional, but that's what he seems to think. So I think we're going to get Liz Truss and I think it'll be a disaster. What's she like as a person to be around? Well, I don't know her very well, but I mean, um, she never struck me as particularly, I don't wish to be unkind, but she was struck me as rather wooden, um, you know. She didn't have the pizzazz of Thatcher. No, I mean, she didn't. She didn't. I mean, Thatcher had, I didn't like Thatcher, but Thatcher had a coherent political philosophy and a moral backbone, which she tried to use in government and did it, you know, in her terms, very well. Um, I don't see that with Liz Truss. I mean, the Prime Minister's going to inherit a huge economic problem in this country, a huge economic problem because of COVID partly, but also because of Brexit, frankly. We have now got a massive economic uh, problem we got, we spent 19 billion pounds, Sean, last month on debt repayments in one month. 19 billion pounds. We're going to have a deficit this year of well over 100 billion pounds. And she wants to she wants to have 30 billion thrown away by the Treasury on tax cuts, which will fuel inflation. And she wants to increase spending on things like defence and immigration officers. I mean, this is, this is cloud cuckoo land. This is bonkers. Right, Norman, it's always a great pleasure and absolute delight. We have run out of time. We'd love to get you back as usual and a huge thank you for spending time with us this evening. You're very welcome, Sean. Very and welcome. check out Norman's books and links in the description box. Thank you. Um, yes, okay. All right, cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, thus ends the Atwood Unleashed 69 Part 1 section on YouTube. We are going over to Patreon, commencing at 8.10. So if you want to continue the ride, come and join us over there for another two hours. And huge thank you to all the Patreons, as usual. Huge thank you to everyone that has supported the channel. We started the YouTube channel in December 2000. I'm sorry, in the summer of 2007. And last night it went over 700,000 subscribers during a podcast with my mum. How funny is that? That was a good moment for us to go over 700,000. So, yeah, huge thank you to everyone. And I know I started out with a lot of thank yous at the beginning of this. Just want to thank the whole team again. Everybody, you know, all of our hardworking team. 
uh, Joe, James, Jen, the three J's, uh, Liam, the cameraman, Jim and Dave up at Material Studios in Liverpool, Victoria on social media, all the co-hosts, Matthew Steeples, Dr. Das. Tomorrow night is Dr. Das's part three going out at 6 p.m. on Jimmy Savile, Madeline McCann and lots of other dark subject matter. Huge thank you to the mods. You know, the mods have been working their asses off this week because we've had multi-hour content going out every night at 6 p.m. Next Atwood Unleashed is Friday at 6 p.m. because I'm going on the road for two weeks. But we will be posting content on Wednesday at 6 p.m., including Jen and I going into a haunted forest near Bath, Sally in the Wood, with our GoPros. And Jen got so scared, she ended up locking herself in the car and calling her mum. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that will be a first. Uh, we'll, we'll see how you, uh, what you think of, of the ghost stuff. And yeah, so I'm going to sign off now and go over to Patreon. Thank you for all your questions. Great community we've built here. Great chemistry in the chat. Much love and respect. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are watching this. Thank you. Cheerio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next part of Atwood Unleashed 69. Andrew, we're going to be bringing Andrew in momentarily. Let me pull him up. Huge thank you to the Patreons on this wonderful day when we have gone over 700,000 subs. You guys' support enabling us to do so much has been such an integral part of our journey. And here's Andrew, the powerhouse himself, who's been an integral part of the journey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've been fairly integral yourself, mate, in tech, in tech form. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, this is the Andrew Unleashed uh, show, but you've been a bit of a part of it let us bring in the guest but your voice sounded a bit funny then is um shall i check the stuff mm -mm. Yeah, you sound all right i think i think perhaps i'm just hallucinating yeah it's my it is my mic should be all right all right all right we're gonna bring in let's see guest number one dr juliet engel let's go for it your smile's looking all right I'm smiling at Ray J. <laughs> Ray J is a godsend. Yeah. Good lad. I'm going to toggle off. Please do. Get the hell out of it, mate. Get a bit of a rest. You deserve it, mate. You work too hard. Oh, it's just me now with Sean's breath. Hello, Julia. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. I like your glasses. They're oh, lovely. <laughs> oh, great colour and everything. Um, thank you for joining us. Where are you talking to us from today? From Washington, D.C. My word. I yes, that place. <laughs> yeah, I have to get over there sometime. I've heard it's a very interesting place, of course. Well, why don't you give us a, a little breakdown of your backgrounds? Okay, I'm a, all right, I'm 73, I'm, I'm a retired physician, I worked for many years as a radiologist, then was invited to Russia to be uh, the first American doctor into their 
uh, birthing system. They wanted consultations on how to improve healthcare, maternal and infant healthcare in Russia. And uh, so in 1990, I went to Russia and was uh, given tours of the real hospitals, not the, the show hospitals. And what I saw there was so horrible, it was just so awful that I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. So as a physician, I kept going back. I brought groups over. I eventually sold my medical practice and started a foundation to specifically reform maternal and infant health care in the former Soviet Union, which, you know, over the course of several years, I had a lot of influence in doing. And uh, in the process, uh, came across the whole problem of children being abandoned at birth, put into institutions, and then trafficked. Oh. So uh, that started my uh, odyssey in about in the mid-90s uh, to trace down what was happening to children. And I discovered that um, they were being trafficked. There were regular trafficking routes. There were regular businesses. There were networks of traffickers that took kids over borders and sold them and subsequently killed them. And um, so that that changed my life drastically. And I began working on uh, preventing and, and uh, informing people and, and eventually ran an underground railroad in the former Soviet Union that over the course wow. of 10 years, we rescued over 70,000 people. It grew into a very large international um, <clears throat> operation and worked in most most countries in Eastern Europe. Europe um, found it very difficult working with the UK, though, gotta say, and mm. almost impossible in the US. So, uh, yeah, so a small group of people were able to have a huge influence on human trafficking. So that's what I'm here to talk about today is how we did that, how we can do this in the West, how the US and the UK really have to take the same model because governments aren't going to solve this problem and we're facing a catastrophe. Well, I suppose on a positive note, what does it feel like to know that you've saved thousands and thousands of lives? Oh, it's funny. I'm a perfectionistic person, so I'm always focused on the ones we didn't save. And when I left Russia, I, I had a whole dossier full of a thousand children over the course of 10 years that we never found. But yeah, it made a very big difference in the, in the or eventually I had to leave. When I got successful enough, uh, Russian military intelligence picked me up basically and said, you're not safe anymore. You've got to get out. And, and uh, I wasn't, and uh, they got me out. And so the operations have continued. So the, the rescue operations, the Russian laws, all that has continued, but it isn't happening here. It's not happening in the United States. It's, it's scattered efforts. And, and uh, I think the same thing is very true in the UK. You've got uh, groomers, you've got courts fighting against people who struggle to, to prosecute the groomers. You've got, you know, it's, it's, it's chaotic. And then out of the bottom are falling our children. So this has got to stop. And uh, so I'm, I'm out here, uh, explaining the model, how it worked in Russia and why it'll work in Western countries like the UK and US, it should work better. Yeah, what you're saying, it reminds me of that very moving scene at the end of Schindler's List, when he'd saved a lot of people and he was just devastated by the ones he didn't save and how, you know, and I suppose that's just 
the, the way the mind sometimes works but but what you've done is really phenomenal and, and i you know i hope you can take solace from that if if you know even while being the perfectionist that you are um but so so tell me i guess what kind of thing is going on today in western countries with regards to the transportation or traffic in the children well it's all kept very much under the radar and governments are complicit in this either by their incompetence or their straight out corruption and and uh i think this is this i speak for the us and the uk in particular we found those the most difficult to work with and and um so there's there's a a deliberate suppression of information about how serious this problem is and also a disabling or a, a sort of a, a mental psychosis against the people to say you're helpless you can't do anything about this you 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 just lay there and take it you know we're taking your kids you just take it no that's not right the most powerful force against this is the people and not the powerful people and not the people in government and not the not the mayor is not the although they have to be you know involved it's it's the people themselves the parents the teachers the care the the uh, local um, educators the local media not the big national media they'll never help but the local media and and uh, building little coalitions little groups of people who just walk out in the street and start observing things you know they know where kids are being held. They know where groomers are operating. They know all this. People know their own neighborhoods, but they haven't any mechanism for doing anything about it. So uh, what we did in Russia was we created something called the Angel Coalition. The idea being that the angels provided a roof over all these tiny little village organizations. Sometimes they didn't even have a telephone. That's how small they were. But they started reporting into this angel network and getting together and and a very un-Russian thing, they would cross the, the borders into each other's villages. I mean, that, that, that never happened. It doesn't happen now in, in the US and the UK. It's like uh, everybody is locked in their own little community. Well, that has to change because uh, law enforcement's limited by jurisdictions. And, and uh, you know, they can't investigate outside of their own jurisdiction. And you can you can block up investigations by moving people around by crossing in the U in the US, you'd cross county lines, state lines. Uh, and then you have to get the federals involved or you have the community involved. So basically the Angel Coalition became a whole network that helped the police, that helped investigate, that would just walk down the street and see who was who was trafficking girls at the local McDonald's and report them, take some pictures. Um, and it's really, it's quite safe, really, because you're just part of the community. But when you reach the point where you become a trusted source for local law enforcement, and particularly in the U.S., the sheriffs, constitutional sheriffs, I don't know about the U.K. system, but I think it's similar. And and um, then, then you've got a movement that's really going to change things and that the federal level will, will have to listen to. But don't go to the federal level. Don't even try it. Don't talk to those people. You know, they offer the money. The money is meant to go to, to you know, their favorite people in law enforcement. And and that's important, but that's not gonna change everything. We need to 
start with no money, just motivation. The motivation is to save our children. What sort of child is at risk of, of trafficking? Is it all children or are we looking more sort of from orphanages and th those kinds of places? Well, certainly every time you have a country that's in stress, you have a society in stress. So you have like in this former Soviet Union, you had extreme poverty. So, you know, people were starving. So they would put their kids in orphanages just so they could eat. So, so, uh, and then they got sucked into the system because the orphanages took them away from wherever their parents were and put them in, in outlying communities where they were just completely vulnerable. So they were extremely vulnerable. And I think, you know, as, as the Western economies are tanking, we're in the same situation. It's not any different. Um, Child Protective Services will come in, start taking uh, kids away from parents from broken up families or from families where there's violence or alcoholism, which all increase when the society's under stress. And you've got groomers and traffickers just waiting for that to happen. So all kids are at risk, especially now with the internet where they can get on the internet and be talking to people you don't even know who they're talking to. And, um, uh, they just broke up a huge ring in Ukraine about uh, kids being talking to Nazis who were promising them nightclubs and fun and all this stuff. And, and the kids were getting taken and used as hostages. So kids, extreme, everybody's vulnerable. The whole community has to be involved in stopping this. And the government will throw out a few posters and do some arrests. Great. That's good. But it has to be community. That's where the power is. And to get, I, th I think I just I want to get an idea of how it actually works. I suppose I suppose to give the parents or you know any parents listening, uh, or even you know children who happen to have come across this, even though they shouldn't really be listening to this, you know, are they going to be sort of just snatched and put somewhere? Is that the kind of thing that happens? That happens. That happens, or they get lured away from their families. They get they get uh, pulled into a group like a like the raves, the, the raves that they have uh, in, in places where kids really shouldn't go, but they go because it's a lot of fun. And then they're gone in the morning and they're across a border into another, into another country. And a lot of that got, got much worse in Europe with the Schengen visas because there was no, no longer any control of borders. Oh, yeah. So, you know, one passport gets you everywhere. Um, one false passport could traffic people to every country in the what was it, 17th Schengen nations. So I know they're, they're thinking about breaking that up, but I don't know. Um, there's all kinds of ways. And if people know what the ways are, and, then you can, you can discover that in your own communities. You can discover that, okay, this strip mall is a center for recruitment. Then you go to the sheriffs and you get them to investigate and you get them to shut it down. So you, you have that power in your community to do this, and that's where it'll stop. You can also get the information about uh, one of the first things we did in Russia, as soon as we had little groups all over the country, that's 11 time zones. That's, that's a lot of country. We had a chat room, a coast to coast chat room. So that's 11 time zone chat room. We didn't know who was going to come on, who was going to chat, who was going to give information because nobody had ever done that in Russia before. And uh, it turns out over 3,000 people came on and meant they were traveling in little buses for four hours to get to a university center and then put in their information because everybody wanted to tell their story. 
and we got over, we used a, a process called an opinionaire because you want not only the straight facts because people don't have the straight facts, you know, not until they've investigated, can they say for sure, you know, that this is happening. However, their opinions are tremendously valuable and they're probably right. And uh, so we gathered almost a million pieces of information and it was enough to take it to the Russian state Duma. And they, they were extremely surprised by this and started writing a very good anti-trafficking law, which the US then just then interfered with and, and kept trying to make prostitution legal in Russia. So there's a lot of wow. that high, high level politicking is, is not gonna solve it. It's gonna make it worse. We also yeah. discovered that, that the US was one of the major destinations for human trafficking. And I made myself tremendously unpopular in my own country by going to Congress and going to the State Department and going to the executive branch and giving them this information, which they did not want to see or hear about. <clears throat> they still why, don't. Why, why has it been so difficult with the US and the UK? Is it a case of trying to save their own reputations and deny that it's happening? It certainly could be, because if they, if they acknowledge that it's happening, they have to do something. And I think in general, governments don't want to do things. It's also a huge source of money. So who's getting bribed? Who's getting paid off? I don't oh know. Goodness. It's it's one of the, it's been proven to be probably the largest source of, of a dark capital on the planet because people can be sold over and over and over again. And uh, with the internet, you know, there was recently a case where, where people were being sold as furniture so um, I think it was uh, it was an America. I, I don't know what country the company was from, but they would sell a wardrobe for four thousand dollars, which should have cost fifty bucks, and it would have a girl's name. And some digital warriors started looking up the names and finding that these were the names of missing children. <gasps> yeah, so that got shut down. But, oh. if, but it was not the law enforcement that discovered this. It was people saying, why does this wardrobe cost $4,000 and why is it named Karen, you know, and tracing it down. So that's what we can do. That's what the citizens can do. The digital warriors, everybody's got a computer. Yeah. You'd, you'd think they'd change the names. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> bloody hell so i mean it's just a whole other world isn't it it's like obviously these people are getting together on the dark web or i don't even know what and acknowledging okay go for the furniture yes that oh my god yes. like, who are these who are these people you know are they sort of just shady criminal characters or are they do, do you have any suspicion you know like with epstein for example that these might be sort of elite known figures I think we're going to see a lot of them when we finally get the Epstein Island visitors logs and the information from Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah, they, there's very high level protection or they wouldn't be able to do this. And I think uh, everyone would agree to that. That has to be happening. And uh, yeah, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein, um, he, he actually offered me a job once and uh, uh, it was to he was just starting Epstein I was just buying the island and they were going to build a resort and he was looking for I, I was a radiologist and an ultrasound specialist so he 
uh, interviewed me and he wanted me to see if I could embed information about people into, into uh, medical reports like x-rays and ultrasound. And I said, sure, yeah, you could do that. But that's as far as that went. <laughs> how. So yeah. Are we, are we due but to I, get... But he was, but oh, he was part of the Iran-Contra uh, flying drugs for guns. So he was in that elite uh, pilot group. Hmm. Sorry. What, it, what I was just going to ask what the latest is on the Epstein that was. Oh, is it right then we're supposed to we're expecting to get you know his or or Jelaine's um, diary log and all of that stuff soon? Well, people are speculating because she was just moved to a minimum security sort of luxury prison. Is such a thing it's supposed yeah. to have Pilates classes, yogas, and a spa? I, I just read this this morning. So, so the idea is that she must be trading information in order to get a, you know, sent to this place. <laughs> do, you, do you have a feeling that the reason it was so difficult to engage in your work with the US and the UK might have had something to do with the Epstein and the alleged uh, Prince Andrew allegations? You know, those the alleged Andrew, I'm being very, very careful by saying allegations and alleged, but do you think it might have something to do with that? I think. Yes, I, I think not only them, but many, many, many people, and uh, and that's why the that's why it's almost like the, it's the government against the people, because in the government you've got layers and layers and layers of corruption. I think that's true for mm -hmm. UK and US, and yeah. and most governments, but at the bottom in the communities, that's where you're going to get an honest effort, and there really is more power in the communities. Than there is with all the government money <clears throat> because it's people fighting for their rights and their children and their communities and that's and that's how this whole world has to be reorganized anyway i mean you've got you've got um layers of society which control and oppress us yeah, yeah. so that's crumbling now those institutions are being proved to be corrupt they're falling so we have to rebuild so do you want to let the government rebuild? No, uh, I don't think so. People have to rebuild and build, you know, their religion, their beliefs, their morality, their all the good things about humanity have to be put into the rebuilding of the institutions. Hmm. I've got um, a, a question from Ray J that I will get on to soon, but I just want to stay on sort of the elites question for now. Uh, Matthew Steeples as well said the prison that Ghislaine Maxwell uh, <laughs> sent to is not as cushy as the one that Judge Nathan and her lawyers wanted her in. Bloody hell, they, you know, she, <laughs> she she really is a piece of work, I think, uh, you know. But um, have, have you been in touch with any of the survivors that were abused by Epstein? No, I, I haven't. No, no, I have been in touch with many who were. I mean, there's many, many Epstein's. He's just one. He's the is one that, that right? everyone is focused on. Oh, yeah. And and uh, there's islands all over. I mean, the Bidens have an island down there. Um, there's evidence that trafficking occurs between islands via little submarines. Ghislaine Maxwell was a submarine pilot. So. That's just the that's just the tip of the iceberg. He's just the symbolic uh, head of this thing. And you know, from the time I knew him in the mid '80s, he had CIA and top-level elite connections, 
um, from day one. So uh, I had no further involvement with him, but he's just one of, I think, many. What involvement did you have with him? Or was it just you met met him? I just met him. He, he came to a, a party at a place where I was uh, visiting a friend and but had specifically come to meet me and to offer me a job with his his uh, upcoming organization, which was going to be a, a spa for elite world leaders to come and uh, <clears throat> have medical treatment and, and whatever. And then they wanted all the all the information, all their information about these people encoded. And it sounded to me like, why do you need to encode this information? <laughs> yeah. So it's suspicious immediately. Like, what information are you encoding in medical reports? No, just was was there something uh, uh, you know? In, in addition to that, was there something just creepy about the man? Oh, oh yeah. Even the then, whole, uh, even then, yes. The whole group. Uh, I was up in uh, Friday Harbor, which is uh, it's San Juan Island is an island on the on the northwest part of Washington State, and uh, we were in a house that was just spectacular. This house with views of Puget Sound and. This gorgeous place. And uh, he walked in and came up to me and started talking. He said, do you want this house? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it's a very nice house. And uh, he offered it to me for a very low cost. And so I was suspicious of the whole thing and didn't didn't go on with this. And, and, and he came with a whole group. All these guys flew in with their black leather jackets and their in their seaplanes and parked down in the water at the at the beach in front of this house and made it very clear that they were all uh, doing working for Oliver North and the guns for drugs organizations and hmm. it was no no bones about that <clears throat> and you, you you say there are many islands you mentioned that the Bidens have one is is that an allegation or, or just you know they have an island there and and do you are there in your minds lots of names that I presume you're perhaps not at liberty to say out loud? I've well, I've seen the same flight logs that everyone has seen. I don't know why why we aren't, you know, working off of those. Why that is is secret, and people are digging into the the names on the flight logs. Those have all been released. So, I guess what is missing is the tapes and the and the uh, videos and all the information about what went on there and how children were abused there a few things have gotten have gotten released hmm. but that's what we're waiting for i guess I and a lot of that i'm sorry a lot of that was seized in epstein's new york home by the fbi so where is it yeah where is it i would like yeah. to know that i mean i guess i guess some people could say look the flight logs while well, i was there but not while all this stuff was going on you know it, yeah. i don't know if it was going on 24 7 if epstein the, the island was purely for that or if it was you know some day some they had days off from that you know i don't know hmm. that's really something you you were saying um that of course you know the uk and the us what other countries have you worked with that's what ray j wanted to know um you know around the world I'm sorry, I was distracted by the chat room. What did you ask me? Don't look at that chat. You'll fall down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> just about um, what other countries, Ray, Ray J is asking, what other countries apart from the US and the UK have you worked with? Oh, we worked with uh, all of the former Soviet Union. So uh, 
you know, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, Belarus, Moldova, Bulgaria, Albania, uh, all of Eastern Europe, uh, Germany. There's a country with a big trafficking problem. Is uh, that right? Fran yes, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> Belgium, why, there's another one. Why might that be? Do you, do you have any thoughts about why certain countries might have a bigger problem than others? I, I'm not sure. I think it probably has a lot to do with the structure of their societies and what is traditionally acceptable in their societies. Like uh, Germans, this is a broad generalization based on yeah. my own observations. I don't have statistics about this, but uh, sex tourism is very big in, in Germany. Um, but we saw the same thing with, with children being put on buses and taken into Finland, Sweden, and up into Norway. So it, it seems to be something that happens everywhere people think they can get away with it. So Germany's, I think it's our job to make it clear they can't. Germany's, yeah, really got a torrid relationship with that kind of thing, as you say. And there yeah. was the famous Kentler experiment in the 70s and 80s where in Berlin, I believe, where he this this guy was sort of in charge of I don't know what and he was a psychiatrist and he decided you know there were too many homeless boys and in the city at the time and there were too many uh, pedophiles and he didn't know what to do with them so he decided to put them together and he housed um, you know homeless boys with known pedophiles and that was sort of supported by a lot of the radical left-wing groups the far left you know not just any left-wing groups who you know it stained them to this day i mean does that sound like a familiar thing to you that kind of thing going on around countries yes yes and of course pedophiles are drawn to uh participate in organizations and in programs and get money to do things like that so i think that's that's uh, where you'll find them and again, communities, communities, if you see that in your community, you know that's happening at a, at a camp or a, a youth facility or something. People will know that in their own communities. Uh, Matthew Steeples asks, any meeting with Peter Nygaard? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I've never met him, no. Who is, for um, those who don't know, who is Peter Nygaard? Well, he did, didn't he just get convicted for... Uh, pedophilia and, and uh, sex trafficking. I believe so. Um, well, they'll tell us in the chat in a minute if that is the case. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a lot of smart people in there. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> no, it's great. Yes, he was connected with Epstein. Says Verity Love. That's very helpful. Thank you for that. What are some of the? You know, obviously, you, obviously, you've been working in this for decades. What are some particularly egregious examples of people that you know, or children that you came across and were either able to help or unfortunately not not able to to help? Oh, there's. It's uh, one of the first uh, cases. Can you pull up pictures? The pictures that I I sent in. I don't I, think we can just because we're not very tech savvy. Oh, okay, okay. Because mm. one of the first uh, experiences I had in uh, really uncovering the, the trafficking of children was in the mid '90s, and I was delivering coats up to the up to an orphanage on the border of Finland in a little town called Sverstroy, and took 65 coats up there, handed them out. The kids went off to school, and there were 15 coats left. And uh, so I asked, you know. And they were all for teenage girls. So I wanted to know where the girls were. And I got 
no answers. I finally talked to the other children who said a bus came during the summer and would take the lucky girls away and they would go to Finland and they'd have a great life. And, and I thought, this isn't right. And so I went to the local police and they said, yeah, these buses come and these girls work as prostitutes and they want to be prostitutes. And I wanted to show this picture because you would look at these little kids and think, no, 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 that's, that's not right. So I, I followed the track of the bus and uh, had help along the way with Russian women's organizations and, and local police forces who, when you point this out, will actually do things, but if, if, but they're not going to initiate anything. So I followed it all the way up to uh, Murmansk, which is in the very Northern part of Russia. And then took a four hour bus ride to Norway, to uh, Kirkenes, which is the farthest North point in Norway. I was the only, American on this bus. I think it was probably the only American who had ever been on this bus. Yeah. And, and I was on there with all these little Sami people who were smuggling cigarettes, but that's another story. And, and so I went right to the police in Kirkenes and I had the picture uh, of the girls. And um, I said, you know, I'm looking for these girls. So the guy pulls open a drawer and it's Polaroid headshots, you know, dozens of them. And I looked at them closely and they're all pictures of children, but the children are all dead. And it just- What? It, yes, yes. And at that point I should have pulled them out, taken them away and all the pictures. I didn't, I was just so shocked. I think I, I nearly vomited in the wastebasket and just, I, I couldn't go through them. So I came back the next morning and then the, no pictures, I didn't have any pictures. But they did say that they found the bodies of children like uh, the bus would come on Saturday, they'd find the bodies on Sunday and they would bury them all in a grave and labeled Natasha because they didn't know who they were. Why were they taking pictures of them? For, for records to record that they'd been there, that they, they were part of a, of a case. They said if they found them alive, they helped them, but they generally found them dead. So then they would bury them. And then they, you know, conspired to hide the evidence. Well, they didn't want, they realized, okay, here's a, here's a real pain in the butt coming. So let's, uh, let's uh, handle this some other way. I did follow up with Norwegian police. It did get investigated. You know, eventually that whole thing got stopped, but um so they it were just, just moved being, somewhere else, you know, sexually exploited and then and then killed. killed. I can't believe I uh, what, working this long in this kind of thing. How, how has that affected your mental health? Having to see things, you know, <laughs> like that. It's it's uh, well, I I came from a background. I was a traffic child. I mm. was raised in an MK Ultra program which meant I'd been trafficked, I'd been sold by my parents into this cult. So I was already a fanatic about uh, doing something about this, you know, and stopping it. And, and uh, I, I would say, yeah, I'm pretty obsessed with it. Um, I don't see how we can continue as a species with this allowing this predation on children. It's completely wrong. 
it's got to stop. Um, and we can fight this because we're human beings. We know right from wrong. We have souls. We have the power of connection to one another. We have communications. We are links with, with spirituality. Those are all the tools we need to fight this. And, uh, Can you, for those who you know don't know about it, what 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 was this with the MK Ultra stuff? Because because not everyone's aware of what that is. MK Ultra was a series of mind control programs, but MK does not stand for mind control. It stands for mind Kampf. and it's it's uh, it's it was a series of 150 some programs that were run by the CIA, and. Uh, based on the work of the Project Paperclip scientists. These are the scientists, the, the Nazi scientists who were tried at Nuremberg, but not executed. These people were brought to the United States and given huge grants, new identities, um, carte blanche to work on American children. And uh, like my uncle and all of his brothers were part of the uh, OSS, and they spoke German, so they were at Nuremberg. So they were very influential in bringing people over, resettling them. Then they put their own children in the program. So that's how I got in there. And uh, yeah, it, uh, so basically they sold their children. To, <laughs> to be part of the, the, the program. Yes, because then, then I think that's a lot of the elites that are running the world right now come from these programs and part of the graduation if you're going to live through it and graduate and become part of the leadership of the world you have to give up your soul so right now we're run by soulless uh, entities who've been thoroughly indoctrinated and that's why they're all saying these crazy things i heard those things growing up over and over and over again. There is no light. There is no dark. There is no man. There is no woman. There is no child. There is no, nothing. There, everything is green. And everything ended with everything is green. And green does not mean chlorophyll. Green is the color you see when you're spun around and around and around. And everything becomes oblivion. So green is oblivion. Were these tests carried out on you then when you were a child? Yes. Yes. I had a horrific childhood. And uh, I reached the point in when I was 17, either I gave up my soul and went on to become something like Secretary of State or something, or I died. And uh, I escaped. So I, I took a third route, forgot, managed to forget everything found out I'm pretty bright and uh, I matriculated myself in the University of Washington, which was a couple states away from where, I, where I'd been and uh, worked my way through college and medical school and uh, didn't really remember my childhood until years later when I was confronting human trafficking in Russia. And people kept asking, well, what do you care? You know, <laughs> why are you here? Uh, you're an American doctor. You could be, you know, living the good life instead of out here fighting for for russian children and children are children you know you don't i don't make it a differentiation between any children so yeah so then i had to go back and look into my own past what what was it like to not remember much of your own childhood what what did you 
you know, were you in touch with your parents still? They, they don't know. As soon as I started asking them anything, they, my father quit his job. They bought a Airstream trailer. They took off to Mexico and I never saw him again. So, which is a pretty typical story for, for people who survived MK Ultra and then confront their parents. Like, what the hell did you do to me? And, uh, yeah, the family is in mass denial. But I mean, there are other others like me that I've connected to, cousins that I've met. Um, and then you a lot were, of you suicides. Were, you were trafficked then as well. Is that to do with the MK Ultra stuff then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was sold by my father when I was six, right? And forced to watch as he took payment for me before I was raped by this guy named Vito. Oh my God, that's that's horrific. So was Vito part of the CIA MK Ultra stuff? Oh, very much so. Yes. Oh my yes. word. And that went on for years and years and years. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, how does it affect you today with regards to things like PTSD, for example? Oh, um, full on PTSD. <laughs> it does get triggered. Lately, I've been doing testimonies as an expert witness for grand juries. And this involves going on the going on the tour system and going into a drop box and looking at autopsies of abused children and saying whether is this consistent with satanic ritual abuse because that's what they did in the in the CIA program and and that that I find extremely difficult I I get uh, easily triggered with that but who else is going to do it you know I'm a physician I've been there. I've seen it happening. So it's not going to stop if I run away from it, is it? No. Have those programs, the MK Ultra stuff and those kinds of things been put to a stop or, or do you imagine there's still this kind of thing happening in government? I think it's still happening and I think they're feeding into uh, a lot of the craziness in your country and our country uh, is is right out of the MK Ultra. These people that are just spewing these anti-human, uh, anti-survival. I mean, the human race can't survive if, if everybody strips their gender and all this crazy stuff all came out of the experimentation in the, in the Nazi camps. And uh, so now we're seeing it manifest and you have multiple levels. You have uh, the people that are at the top and you have the people in the senior executive service, which I think is actually run by the UK, even though it's operating in the US. And uh, the senior executive service, these people are untouchable. They can come into any program, they can disrupt any nonprofit organization, they, they go into businesses and their, their objective is destruction. And uh, they cannot be stopped, they cannot be fired. That's why a lot of the people that, that are in government in the US that our people, our citizens are saying, God, why don't you arrest those people? They're untouchable because they're senior executive service. And somehow that is run by somebody in your government. And um, yeah, I, I have no problem believing that. And these are people that have been mind controlled and stripped of their souls. So we've got a big problem in the world, a very big problem. And uh, government is not gonna listen. Government is not, government is, has become the problem to a large extent. But law enforcement has to be involved and they 
they're already getting more and more involved, but they need the citizenry activated. I've got a question from Easy E on the side saying, are you aware of Michael Aquino and Nicole Kidman's father were forefronters in MKUltra using SRA mind splitting as the basis for the control? Yes. Michael Aquino, I was part of that program with the Temple of Set. And yeah, and I've had my own personality split into like 150 different uh, categories that still give me trouble. I have trouble moving from one to the other. But yeah, that was Michael Michael Aquino, and uh, Vito was a, was a part of Michael Aquino's inner group. He's dead now. I mean, they're all they're both dead. And uh, yeah, Project Paperclip has has brought the scientists over, and the MK Ultra, which is Mein Kampf, uh, ultra secret. Uh, was the program and it's based on the last third of Mein Kampf and the satanic bible the mind splitting stuff you sound you you say sorry sounds quite out there doesn't it but i was just speaking to somebody oh. the other day uh who's a former scientologist who was put under all sorts of uh, experiments as you can imagine in scientology and he said the same thing he said you'd be amazed how strong that is and it split my personality into all sorts of different things what was that like to actually experience well since i never had the normal experience i really i've lived with this all my life but that's how i could forget so that's how i could take my entire childhood and forget it and become a completely different person i moved into a different personality and stayed there and then uh, i have trouble at times uh integrating across across the lines like I'll, I'll be in one and to get to the other i have to go through it it's not an easy transition hmm. but it's also extremely useful because uh if you're gonna lie you gotta lie in one of those personalities and you don't have to connect to the other ones so right i know this but that that was useful for me in in tracking down traffickers and because i could be extremely calm when i was not afraid of I put my fear in another personality. So yeah, it's a very real thing. And, and I can spot other people that have the multiple uh, identity, the, the dissociative identity disorder. You are tortured and punished and, and uh, you go through abuse until you are terrified to the point where you split. And they Can you spot girls, them just by looking at them? No, when they start talking, You'll, you'll be talking to one person and then suddenly you realize in the same person you're talking to another person wow. you probably wouldn't notice because you're not looking for it but uh yeah i picked them up wow i, sp I suppose not, do, I, not, yeah. do i feel like a very much a, a solitary individual <laughs> maybe a complete individual hmm. <laughs> but not but not different ones so far I'm sorry. What was the question? I, I keep getting the, the, distracted. Oh, the people on the side. I don't. Yeah. You're not get. You're not picking up like different personalities in me. No, no. I, okay. Why do you have them? No, no. I was just checking, but um, I, I thought maybe I have. I'm, I'm sort of a hypochondriac, and I just thought it oh, sounds no. like something I would I would have, but uh, I, I don't don't think I do. Does it still Were affect you you today? No. Oh, of course it affects me. It affects me a lot, and. Uh, in terms of, of like being very much single-minded about 
about the the trafficking and stopping this and yeah it, it would take someone who who has experienced this can relate to that's why i'm doing the testimonies even though it's so hard on me um i can put it in a, another one of my personalities which is probably just loaded with horrible stuff and uh talk that. like talk like a normal person <clears throat> do you feel um uh, you know after all your decades of work do you feel positive i mean obviously you've had an impact a very hu huge impact uh do you feel positive that these things are starting to come out into the open a little more and, and they're less effective in in taking and, and murdering children i don't know because my experience has been so negative for right from the beginning i mean i was involved as a very small child in Saturnalia's and satanic ritual abuse and child sacrifice. And, um, you know, I had to see that. I had to experience it. So, so my whole life has been immersed in it. Um, I think that the proof that there's, there's a worldwide reaction is, is the reaction of law enforcement. The fact that, uh, I know one of the slides I brought, it shows that there's something like, uh, almost 200,000 sealed indictments against pedophiles and child traffickers and another 26,000 which are currently in grand juries and this this is this is unheard of for the last 10 years so yes these things are happening and moving forward and i know the grand juries are taking place and i know that this is being examined and looked into i i, I don't know if if you laid all this out in front of normal people, they'd probably go shrieking for the hills, but it's gonna take normal people to stand up for this and say, no, you can't do this in our society. Are you still in touch with any of the people that you know that, that you helped back in, you know, the children? Oh yes, yeah, a lot of them have grown up. They're <laughs> in businesses. I just heard one recently got arrested for stealing a piano. <laughs> Why are you stealing oh. a piano? <laughs> you know? So, yeah, so we, you know, we hear everything's, uh, they're people, so they, they live their lives. And we lost, I mean, for me, some of them died. Some of them went back into trafficking because it was better than their, than their lives in a Russian village. And I wrote about that. I, I did write a book, so... I, I don't know if uh, that is. Yeah, Angels Over Moscow. So, so what? Tell us a little bit about the book. Well, it's my it's my story in Russia. How I was invited to Russia and how I started in the Russian birthing centers, and then how I discovered that the children were being uh, abandoned and then trafficked through orphanages, and then my story of tracing down how. Uh, I started uncovering the, the traffickers' routes, and then how we did the nationwide uh, angel coalition, and and uh, the tremendous effect and impact that had um, in Russia and uh, in uh, actually in all the former Soviet Union, and then in Eastern Europe, and then the mm -hmm. tremendous resistance we ran into in the United States. Where can people get hold of uh, Angels Over Moscow? It would you know Amazon and all the normal places. Yes, and I think you guys are going to post my website, which at the bottom there, and so you can get it linked to the website, to Amazon, or to um, my publisher, which is Trine Day. So there's a couple mm. ways to get it. 
Oh, fantastic. Tell me, um, we've got we've got about 10 minutes more, uh, or eight, eight, seven or eight minutes, actually. Um, I'm just interested, you know, you, you speak of this person was stealing a piano. How deeply does this kind of abuse to, to children and, you know, how deeply does it affect them in the sort of path of the rest of their lives? Well, there's there's the children who are, are trafficked and then brought back and then, you know, reintegrated. There's the children that are trafficked as teenagers and they do less well because they're they're just establishing their sexual identities and and they have a harder time and then there are the adults who are are uh, trafficked i mean we had a case where a boutique brothel in italy was trafficking 55 year old women because i know because men preferred older women so you know, the women were shocked when they, they, they took a nanny job and then wound up in a brothel. And uh, so we learned a lot about uh, the boutique brothel industry. And they, they do well. You, you, get, you get an older person who's already established as a personality, get them home. They like uh, become our biggest supporters and, and, and hard workers. And, mm. and so it's, it's, it's all a matter of if the if the person is so young that they're still malleable and they can come back and adjust, but boy, teenagers do not do well. You know, they're just establishing their psych, their, their physical. And that's why this, this attack on the gender of children is, is, is being done. I mean, this is a, this is a planned uh, attack and an anti-human agenda, the Mm. green agenda, you will all be green. You're going to oblivion. Huh. And so you're talking, we're, we're on to, uh, what is it, gender ideology. Um, and, and you posit that that comes from the top and it's part of a, a sort of a, a conspiracy or, you know, to 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 what end to just sort of make us, what would you, you tell me to what to what end? My, my belief about uh, the... Um, like the MK Ultra programs, and these are documented. You know, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, in 1976, there were hearings, and the CIA admitted they had 185 of them with thousands of people involved. Uh, most of them didn't even know they were involved, so they were all under mind control. Um, I totally forgot the question. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, just what just about it? gender ideology, just, about whether uh, gender ideology comes from comes from the top and has a sort of un, uh, a hidden ulterior motive behind it. Oh, I think, yes, very much so. Because the entire thrust of the programs with children in the United States, I can say, was to destroy gender and to capture a person's soul. So the Nazis were extremely interested in what's the relation between uh, gender and soul and can we capture souls? Can we use souls? Um, so the graduation really from MK Ultra was you give up your soul and then you get all the bling. You can be a crummy singer that gets to sing at the Super Bowl. You know, as long as you've given up your soul and the soul is a very real thing. And uh, I kept mine and have no intention of giving it up. And from that comes the strength to fight against this and uh, so normal humans with human souls and their spiritual connection 
to God are are the warriors who will fight this. Hmm. Well, fair enough. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, to say before we log off or, or something? Uh, great questions. I'm very interested in uh, talking oh, about uh, some of the topics are very good. Oh, <laughs> so I, well, I keep getting you. distracted over there. <laughs> By the people on the side, those yes. lovely message people. The, well, they, 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 I believe they're big fans of yours, you know. And, and I think Anita Zonda <laughs> makes a great point, you know, is selling your soul to become rich. That's what a lot of it is, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Yes, yes. And then when they're taking adrenochrome from babies, they're taking their souls. And when the Hadron Collider in in CERN is spinning around, what are they trying to create? trying to create the god particle what's the god particle the god particle is a human soul they have not successfully done that but if they can artificially create souls they see that as an infinite source of of power but we have our souls you have your soul i have my soul this is our strength well it's fascinating mm. juliet you've been an absolute star thank you so much for coming on um and i hope you have a you know a lovely day i'm sure you've got an, a lot of new fans here matthew steeple saying thank you for such a fascinating set of thoughts juliet a mine of information rita brooks says pure evil <laughs> she's not referring to you <laughs> but uh just talking about the people you're talking about it is it is pure evil green is pure evil it's yeah nothing no, to that's, do with that's plants what, <laughs> that's what rita was saying but it, yes. um not 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 talking about you a nexus come back juliet you're amazing best regards easy god bless you juliet please come back anita thank you juliet rebecca thank you great work and great information <laughs> oh what a reaction people are having to you thank you so much juliet i think you might have to either close your window or someone will like cut you off or something oh it, she's already gone there we go that would have been sean so i expect to hear his whispering voice any moment now i'm always here always there your microphone's a bit low. My microphone's a bit low? Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a second. How's that now? Is that oh, better? Yeah. Dulcet tones of Sean Atwood. Toggle back in. Yeah. Now. <laughs> that was good. Yes, I'm going to bring in George Webb now. Well, I'm going to go to sleep, mate. You get the evening off from here. The evening off. Yeah, think of that. Think of that. Always working. Always bloody working. It's always more. Thank you, everyone. Love to you all. Great guests. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ash. And good night to you all. Go and get your beauty sleep. There goes Andrew. All right. Get ready for investigative journalist George Webb. Just going to bring him in now. Bear with me. Well, there we go. So George has, oh, we've come on fast. Excellent. Hey, George, how's it going? Great, Sean. Uh, this is an honor. I've never talked to you directly before. I've only read your books and talked to Eddie. So this is great. Oh, well, it's an honor. Touche. It's an honor to have you on as well. And just uh, by way of introduction, then, I was just saying that you were covering the recent pandemic, Origins of the Virus, and you're going to give us your insights on your lawsuit against CNN and Jeff Zucker and the weapon story you've been working on. But what got you into this stuff in the first place? No, man. 
I like you, Sean, was doing great outside of journalism, <laughs> and it's it's like falling off a cliff, and then you then you know like the coyote when he was against the Roadrunner as an American cartoon, <laughs> they just have a big puff of smoke when they finally hit at the bottom. Well, that's not journalism. Journalism is hitting the side of the rocks and just keep you keep get hitting. But uh, I, you know, I got into it just probably the same reason you did. You wanted to tell the truth. And you can't stand being lied to. And even if it hits you big time uh, economically, you got to tell the truth. That's you know, just, yeah. Yeah, working in the stock market in the 90s, uh, Enron, and then the 9-11 uh, insider option trading just completely woke me up for how the world really is run. Yeah, the that whole run-up. Um, you know, I benefited from that being in high tech on the West Coast in, uh, you know, the whole dot com thing. But, um, you know, Enron was complete, uh, just a complete fake <laughs> shell on shell on shell company. Uh, and, and isn't it interesting, Sean, that you you always pre-wire your buildings for explosives just in case there's a terrorist attack. <laughs> and even the buildings that don't get in are pre-wired the day of 9-11. That's weird. And that's where they were doing the Enron investigation, the SEC Enforcement Division in Building 7. Isn't it interesting that that also had to get pulled? <laughs> Good old Kenny Lay. I remember yeah. when he got arrested, I said, this guy's never going to get his day in court. <laughs> <laughs> and he was uh, cremated in one day, right? They got him, they took him to Colorado where you can cremate in one day after they die. And he was gone. And Skilling was the same thing. I think Skilling got killed as well, didn't he? Or put in jail. I can't remember what happened to Skilling, but we did start tonight out with Janice McAfee. And she was telling us that they won't give his body up. They've had it for over a year now. Oh, really? Oh, so she was on the show before this. She was on the on at the beginning, yeah. I, I met John um, in in high tech. I worked for McAfee for a while. And uh, when it had gone, he had left and had gone to Network Associates. But interestingly enough, a guy named Dmitry Alperovich, who's at CrowdStrike now and did the DNC hack, we bought a company um, at Network Associates, uh, 12 hackers from, from Moscow. And they sat in... Uh, network associates on the McAfee side and they wrote viruses and I couldn't believe it. I, was like, I thought they were going to write antivirus. <laughs> no, they were writing the viruses to release so they could generate the big sales at the end of the quarter when people were trying to close their books. And that's, I wasn't involved in any of this journalism stuff until I saw he was the guy who was leading the investigation into Hillary's dnc hack i said hey you got the wolf here you don't have the chicken <laughs> this is the guy going into the and right then i said this can't be this can't be right everybody's being lied to that's when i got into it it's when i saw dimitri alperovich yeah what, what was john like in person uh he's a bragger um i i had a, he actually moved back to portland and i was close to him and kind of saw him a lot when i was downtown uh and he had gone through a big cycle uh, where he had been in trouble with the law and then he had been done some kind of informant thing and helped the government and then now he was okay again and then he had uh, two or three girlfriends that were all in their 20s 
um, down there on that island, and he was taking ten Viagra a day. <laughs> you know, it was crazy stuff. But he was pretty. He was a bragger. Um, uh, but he, nah, not that he didn't deserve. I mean, he did a lot. Uh, he started in Silicon Valley driving his van up and down uh, 101, giving out antivirus software and diskettes, going up against some pretty big companies. So I got to give him credit for that. So what are these weapons stories then you've been working on? Oh, gosh. Chasing weapons is the world's least um, rewarding as far as the kind of crap you get. Uh, but um, governments, unfortunately... Um, want to protect their oil. They want to protect, they want to get resources, the rare earth metals, the uranium, you name it, any war metal, if you will. Uh, so they do a lot of deals in secret. Ron Contra, I was just talking to Peter Dale Scott. We were talking about uh, Ron Contra. Uh, but they will do the deals. Dick Cheney will put uh, a, an American command system in Kazakhstan if he has oil that he wants in Kazakhstan. So there's all these secret deals that end up happening. And where I kind of got into it, it's not really the, you know, the covert Ali North, we're going to put in uh, mercenaries. I got into it with more of these bio agents and bioweapons, where you want to clear a pipeline from point A to point B across seven countries. And you don't need the whole country. You only need like a 10 mile swath, like the old railroad days, you know, <laughs> 10 miles either side of the right of way. And I started looking at these bio agents coming out of Fort Detrick and coming out of Fort Belvoir, which is sort of the place that does the viruses and the vaccines. They get the recipe, if you will, from Fort, um, uh, Fort Detrick. And then they're the cake and bake shop, you know, at Fort Belvoir. So I spent a lot of time at these. American forts chasing these bioweapons, chasing uranium as well. And I've been doing that for six years. I can't believe it. Wow. How big is the weapons industry these days? Getting close to a trillion. Um, I think England's interesting. Uh, I've had a chance to visit England uh, this year, your, your beautiful country. And I spent a lot of time over there in uh, Salisbury, with porting down um, and chasing Russians and chasing uh, different <laughs> folks, MI6 people. And uh, so I don't really, I don't, I don't know anything about, you know, here's the F-35 from Lockheed and here's all the things that are wrong with it and all that, which is the big budget part of the defense budget and the NATO budget. I work on a very small sliver of the budget, which is really the dark weapons, the stuff that they can't talk about or is not public. So if you look at the stuff Porton Down is doing, um, or, you know, like anthrax, coronavirus, the weaponization of coronavirus, or all the hemorrhagic fevers. So it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, if there was a reading room, if there was a journalist reading room or waiting room, I would be in the way, way, way back corner you know, bio corner <laughs> and everybody else would be talking about tanks and guns and weapons. And I'd be back there with test tubes, you know, so that's me. Sounds like a bio corner of a house of horrors. What are the scariest things you've discovered in that corner? Well, um, the coronavirus, I believe is a 20 year project. Um, there are a whole bunch of things that we inherited from two big programs. 
One is the Nazis, believe it or not. So the Nazis were working on all this same stuff. The hemorrhagic fevers, Marburg, you know, Marburg didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, um, the Ebola didn't just come out of nowhere. They actually come from the, the old Nazi programs. We brought those people here to the United States at Fort Detrick. You can't believe this guy named Eric Traub, Kurt Blom. What? We brought in Nazi, the Nazi bioscientists too with the IG Farman? Yeah, we did. And then there was another wave that hit at the end of the fall of the Soviet Union where we brought in a lot of these guys. So I've gone to a lot of the places there at Ken Alabeck from the Biopreparat program. And we've taken their stuff. And here's the logic. Well, this could fall in the hands of a terrorist. So we need to develop a defensive program, which is really could be an offensive program, to make sure that if it ever did fall into the hands of the enemy, that we would have a vaccine. And that really starts after 9-11. And Fort Belvoir, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, is the place where that happens. So coronavirus, uh, anthrax, brucella, just a whole bunch of stuff that you, monkeypox, you know, you just, you name it. Uh, it's, there's a program. So I'm familiar with who we brought in at the end of World War Two. You said we brought a load in the, during the fall of communism. So are you referring to like Russian scientists and stuff? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Russian scientists, we had, they had a big program in uh, Nova um, Sibirsk, which is in East, Western Siberia, but Eastern, wait, somewhere in the middle uh, in Siberia. Um, Semipolitinsk, there was a, a couple of different uh, places in, there was a huge program. It was about uh, 10,000 to, it fluctuated, uh, but it was more than 10,000 people that Ken Alabeck had in the Biopreparat program. Um, 10 major, you know, locations. But they, this guy named Jens Kuhn was the major diplomat that was taking all the Biopreparat stuff in this Project Vector, it was called and bringing it all back to Fort Detrick. And then what they were doing at Fort Detrick is saying, well, we can't release the weapon in order to develop the vaccine because that would be just like attacking ourselves. But what we'll do is we'll attenuate it. We'll make it not quite as deadly. And then we'll release it in a place like Haiti or we'll release it in a controlled place like Africa where nobody's going to know too much we'll try to make people sick if a couple people die well then that's just kind of the rub of the green uh we need to develop a vaccine and then they would develop the vaccine at fort belvoir um dtra this is cycle has gone on ever since the fall of of the russian program the biopreparat program we just don't know it we just don't recognize that this program exists for coronavirus so where i really started getting involved in this was in looking at the bio agents used in libya and then syria then sudan then yemen um, then potentially in kazakhstan and georgia and just different places that are not very famous but have a lot of oil in the world and i i, I see this program sars mers SARS-2, COV-2, which is coronavirus now, is, is a 20-year program. And these releases, sort of like small incremental 
vaccinations, if you will, small releases that then they developed a vaccine are, are, are sort of the what they call a live exercise at the State Department. It's run by the State Department. And this is the idea that, well, we'll give you a little bad stuff and then see if you get sick and then how to get you better. And then we'll give you a little bit more and then a little bit more. And then you'll eventually develop an immunity to this stuff. Uh, that's a long one. That's a long description. No, this is fascinating, George. So what you're describing here is like a fusion of big oil, big pharma, the military industrial complex. I'm curious what you suspect the end game is then for that's, that's the book right there <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah what do you suspect the end game is for this entity and is this you know are all, are all those sectors of industry just if, if you trace them all the way back controlled by the same powerful people well i think there is this uh overlap uh when you start going from you know, take it all the way back to Rockefeller. The oil was like, hey, did you realize, Mr. Rockefeller, that if you made drugs out of this barrel of oil, it's worth a thousand times more than the barrel of oil? That's when Rockefeller said, okay, clear my schedule. <laughs> How do I get into this drug business? You know, Dick Cheney, uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld is the CEO of Cyril, I think it was. A lot of these people come from oil backgrounds in the DOD or they come from the drug backgrounds. And uh, they seem to be the same people involved in continuity of government as an aside. But, but you get the idea is, hey, wait a minute here. With the same resource, same barrel of oil, we're going to get a thousand times more money here. Now, what if you could take a weapon of an enemy and then dose it out in such a way to create an international panic, sort of like a bio 9-11, then I would have tremendous demand for the vaccines I've already developed. We've already been developing these as a part of our counterterrorism for the last 30 years. They're sitting on the shelf. We're going to make out like bandits if we can do bio 9-11s, little baby bio 9-11s here. We're going to make some bucks. And that's what's happening. When you throw the profit motive in, I think, is when things go. For instance, Moderna never was a real company. They never shipped a real product. They were always a DARPA creation from day one. They basically took a library of stuff that they had worked on at W at uh, Fort Belvoir, DTRA, a library of nine years, and basically just created a little baby bio 9-11 and pushed through mRNA and experimental mRNA vaccination technology as fast as possible. There was no looking at, hey, let's see if there's a natural vaccine. Let's look at the DNA vaccines that we've already have. None of the normal things you would normally do is just like, no, we must do DARPA's mRNA. Um, and, and I think when you look at uh, the Pfizer side of it, and then over on your side of the pond, um, AstraZeneca, it's sort of like five poker players who are going, okay, after we do this, you get this many chips, you get that many, you get that many. And everybody takes about a third or, or a fourth, you know? And that, that seems to be the game that's going on. And monkeypox is coming. Congo Crimea hemorrhagic fever is coming. They've got a whole shelf full of stuff that they can pull off and do these little baby bio 911s. Yeah, I was recently approached by some people who are selling short the stock of Moderna and Pfizer. And I advised caution because 
these guys dictate government policy and that is just a money-making thing right there isn't it yeah i mean they're in control of when the i call it a clockwork orange again another england reference mm -hmm. but you take a little bit of blood you have to unfortunately some people die when you do these little live exercises but most of it is yellow fear so you put the yellow fear together you put it together with the red blood you get orange that's what and it's and it's released on a clockwork basis so that's you know i think i it's a better than the movie if you've seen clockwork Orange, it's not really that good you know a guy likes milk i mean that's not a, such a great story i mean if so, you look at the if you look at the profits of these companies though they're staggering i mean how much money do these people want isn't there like a limit where they can just stop doing this stuff I mean, what i don't think they look at it like that i think they look at it like control and they say wait a minute the world population is 6.4 billion what what plan do we have in place just in case there is a food shortage or an energy shortage uh, you know how do we make a selection or can we make a selection wouldn't it be great if we could vaccinate who we wanted to keep and then well if you didn't get the vax then you were probably a 9-11 guy anyway or you were a january 6 guy you deserved it you deserved to die <laughs> you know I think that's also in the back of their plans. There's a Dick Cheney, Wolfowitz kind of logic here that says we got to have a plan if the world has too many people. I'm not saying it's a depopulation plan, but I am saying, you know, we need to learn how to thin the herd before it becomes too big of a problem. Um, and so, so I think they see this as a national security thing. So if they make tremendous amounts of money, well, that's just kind of on the side. But they, they go, I think they go to work every day thinking, what are we going to do? You know, David Rockefeller just asked me, you know, when he was alive yesterday, what do I do when the six population hits 6.5 billion? You know, uh, that that's the dynamics, I think, that are going on. How does Ukraine fit into all this? <sighs> wow. Uh, what a great question. Um, there's this guy named Kolomoisky, uh, and he is the guy who runs Azov Brigade. He's the guy who put Zelensky into uh, the presidency as a puppet. Remember, Zelensky was a, a, a latex dancer, I think he was. So he was a comedian. He was a funny guy. But he, he was on this one plus one network of this Igor Kolomoisky. And we had been following Igor Kolomoisky and Dark Weapons since 2016, because he seemed connected to this guy named Eric Braverman that was running the Clinton Foundation doing these covert missions, covert operations in Libya and Syria. So we were looking at Kolomoisky since then. He was also involved in the 2014 overthrow of, of um, Donbass or, or 2000 overthrow of Yanukovych, which leads to, um, you know, as of this mercenary army getting brought in structurally, sort of like bringing the brown shirts into the German army, bringing the, you know, the, the SS into the German army, and then poke the bear then. Then the next eight years, their job is this mercenary army, poke the bear to get Russia to invade, and then we get the reconstruction. There was a movie called The Mouse That Roared, where you, you poke the big bear to attack you so that then they give you reconstruction money. And there's a seven... $150 billion reconstruction plan on the table. This is reconstruction before, you know, like Hitler's uh, invaded Russia, you know, in, in the parallel, you know, in World War II. 
and they're already carving up reconstruction, if you can believe that. Kolomoisky uh, is the most unknown name, uh, but I think he's the most important name. He's way more important than Zelensky. But you just, he was, and, and he's an international criminal. I've been to his house in Switzerland. He can't go back to Switzerland. He's been sanctioned by the State Department, so it's not like I'm beating up on some guy who's not internationally known. He's sort of like a Mark Rich kind of guy running these illegal things. We were looking at him at a um, at a news gathering, news conference summit that we done in Washington, D.C. for spraying coronavirus and other kinds of agents in Hong Kong right before the breakout of coronavirus in China. So there's a lot of pies that he's got his fingers in. So if, to me, Ukraine is all about Kolomoisky. Could these reconstruction uh, greedy calculations go astray, though, and this could escalate from proxy war to nuclear war? Oh, well, absolutely. Oh, first of all, when the, the big story I got involved with in was saying the bio event, the little baby bio event, uh, was the Wuhan military games, the Wuhan military games in October, a little bit about a month before when the traditional people say that the uh, coronavirus spread. And we were taught, they, the Chinese foreign ministry was saying the Americans brought it. The American delegation brought it. And the, the Americans were saying it's the Wuhan flu, the Kung flu. You guys did it. And this is active war type stuff. So I think we got close to a conflict there. Um, I think we're getting close to a conflict in the South China Sea right now, supposedly. Um, we're certainly close to a conflict in Ukraine. I don't know if it's to scare the bejesus out of all of us so that we give them even more money. We've already given $100 billion here in the United States to Ukraine. But you keep cycling up. Um, I, had to, I spent one night in France. Uh, in a room next to a Ukrainian arms dealer and then two bodyguards on either side of me. I was like, how did I get in this hotel? Wow. But they were buying long-range, very precision-guided munitions. And, you know, the HIMARS now has taken it to the 60-kilometer type range. But they're talking about, uh, you have the Harpoon missile that you, you know, is in the 300-kilometer uh that can be repurposed and now you're going to hit targets in Russia. Now you're going to hit that bridge that Putin likes so much, the Kerch bridge. And they're talking right now, uh, Ukrainians about a 300 kilometer, uh, the upgraded version of the high Mars, which, uh, is the longer range. And I, you know, every time you do this, it's kind of like chicken. You hope that everybody, you know, keeps the lid on this thing, but it could, it could blow off at some point goodness do you think china is going to take taiwan then uh i i think uh no i think t nancy pelosi is going to make a big you know well, i'm gonna uh, you know like kennedy said uh, hp9 berliner <laughs> nancy pelosi is gonna say hp9 where am i <laughs> uh, and, and, and they don't speak german here you know i thought all i had to do was say hp9 berliner and everybody's gonna cheer um so I don't think they're going to do that. But I think the real battle in the South China Sea is the oil rights, the oil and gas rights. Um, really, if you look at it, Taiwan is, yeah, it's nice. It's some, you know, nice island and so forth. But what they really want is the oil and gas and the shipping lanes. Um, 
and China's gonna gonna get them. Or if they don't have them already, they built those Channel Islands out there already. So I think a lot of this other stuff is bravado. And may I say, Sean, before we get any further, thank you to Addy Ads for setting this up. Oh, I should have. He is a great guy, and yeah. I just want to say thanks to him for setting this up. Definitely. So, and in terms of Ukraine, then was that a resources play as well? Yeah. Oh, uh, very good question. The uh, heavy metals in eastern Ukraine are Donbass is known for titanium. Uh, Kolomoisky, big titanium guy, big tunneling guy, using the Elon Musk technology to tunnel into Donbass and get all the oil and gas. So, uh, but also lithium. There's a big lithium presence there. So Elon Musk is interested in that. But in the Black Sea, they've also found a huge amount of uh, oil and gas reserves as well. It's not a Leviathan type find that you find in the Eastern Mediterranean, but a pretty huge thing they're fighting over. And I think Putin wants his his stake in it. That's why I think Putin's gone beyond Donbass, if you notice, a little bit down almost to Kershaw, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be around for the when we're pumping the gas and oil out of here. I think what, Putin is a lot more of an oil and gas guy than people think he is. What shady deals were the Bidens involved in Ukraine? See, I think uh, Hunter Biden um, is sort of a, uh, a Lee Harvey Oswald in this whole thing. Uh, you know, <laughs> he holds up the encrypted BlackBerry that they all use, you know, for doing the deals. And yeah, hey, mom, you know, here's, oh, sorry. Uh, turn off flashlight. Um, you know, but I think this guy named Kofor Black, the CIA guy who's been in oil and gas with Dick Cheney and all the uh, Project for New American Century guys, he, he really uses Hunter Biden sort of as like the village idiot kid that they bring in at the end put the Russian prostitute in the thing, give them some cocaine, hidden cameras everywhere. And that takes the whole, it's sort of like, we're going to do our business in this hotel room and Hunter's over there. Um, and, you know, he, he just plays the role. I think he plays, he enjoys playing the role of the fool. Um, and he's kind of laughing about it. He gets to live in a beautiful place. He doesn't have to work at all. The place he lives in Los Angeles is gorgeous, looks out over the ocean. Um, and every once in a while, uh, you know, somebody has to print a picture or play a movie of him doing something embarrassing with some prostitute. Hey, so what? Uh, you know, it's like he's, he's, he's accepted the TMZ lifestyle. And I think he's done that because this brother, you know, his brother didn't play it that way. His brother, you know, said, I got some backbone and I'm going to stay on my ground. And he ended up dead. Remember, Joe Biden's uh, girls were, you know, weird, weird, crazy accident, killing his wife and this, his little girl. So that family has had so much tragedy. Uh, so I don't pick on the Bidens. Uh, I had a guy who was a Biden advisor in 2017 give me a phone or drop me a phone an encrypted phone from the Senate. And it said, hey, we did a lot of energy stuff, but we didn't do this covert stuff, this Libya, Syria, Sudan, all that. We didn't do that. Uh, and I believe him. So far, everything he said over those five years, six years now, has checked out that the Bidens were, you know, I think when it started, Hunter was like, 
hey, I'm really going to use my law degree. I'm really going to make $83,000 a month. I'm, I made it. And then he realized the first time the first film came out, he goes, no, I'm just the clown. I'm just the rodeo clown they bring out uh, to divert people from these deals. I mean, it's quite sad to see his dad shaking hands with invisible people, <laughs> making all of these speech you know, mistakes and using cheat sheets, etc. But should he really be in that position? And how long are the American public going to stomach that for? Uh, and then get Kamala. Uh, <laughs> I, I would rather have Biden. Uh, I, I, I've met Kamala Harris and I've talked to her a lot. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill when she was a senator. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not impressed with her. J again, Joe Biden in the early days, he was a pretty sharp guy. I, I even liked him in 92 for, you know, running for president. That's a long time ago. That's, you know, 30 years, whatnot. But um, as long as he doesn't like fall or run or trip over something, I'm okay with him being president until the election. Um, you know, the invisible handshake and stuff, it's kind of, kind of fun, <laughs> you know, because it could be so much worse. Suppose it would be like somebody like Dick Cheney, who would be, he would be in there making plans every day, doing something. Biden, at least, you know, he's not harming anybody too bad so but doesn't it show that you know if, if he's got like alzheimer's or whatever um doesn't it show that he has zero power to it, it, obviously someone else is calling yep. the shots because this guy can't even you know function yeah well that's for sure I, it's just a show position i i don't really think anybody thinks well I, there's a huge swath of people that believe in the two-party system and they believe that whole thing but i don't and there's a lot of people like me who go who's really running the show is kissinger still running the show is klaus schwab really running the show klaus schwab snaps his fingers and 15 20 republican senators show up at davos like they're lapdogs like what's going on they come in and do bilderberg in washington dc and everybody's frothing at the mouth over there to get to the hotel the, to to me the guy doing the deals right now is, is Schwab um, and Kissinger not, is not getting out of bed, but he's making the phone call to Schwab and they're talking it over. Kolomoyski is kind of one of their guys that goes and creates the wars, but, but nobody's coming over and saying, president Biden, we just got to communique. What do we do? <laughs> no, somebody's laying out his clothes. And then somebody else comes in and says, well, your first appointment is with the choir club of, you know, Detroit, and, you know, and, and he, I'm sure thinks it plans his day around bathroom breaks. It's like, when is my bathroom break going to be, you know, and he, he looks good in a suit still. He's in good shape. Uh, so where does Schwab get his power from? And does he represent certain people who is he the face of something else? Well, Schwab goes back. Uh, I just had gone to Oberammergau, and I was just at the G7. And um, it, in Oberammergau is the NATO spy school. And that's where Kissinger started as a professor at 23 years old. And Schwab's father was one of the key guys in Ravensburg. And I spent about four days in Ravensburg where he grew up. And was one of the key guys was on the Nazi uh, rat line. It was not just the rat line for scientists. But it was also a lot of the uh, German intelligence folks and a lot of the gold 
that ended up going over to Basel, Switzerland. So uh, his father, um, Eugene, was very instrumental in taking a lot of the Nazi technology. The, the Nazis had moved from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. They'd moved their nuclear program down near Ravensburg. And so they ended up uh, doing these uh, nozzles and separation technologies and, and, and also um, turbines for nuclear. And then it ended up selling a lot of that technology to Israel and South Africa, Iraq, Iran, etc. So, so, so Schwab, the World Economic Forum, uh, really was a front company, I believe, to sell to South Africa because it became very um, not a good thing uh, to sell to South Africa in the late 70s. Um, I visited the headquarters. Uh, they're on one side of Lake Geneva. Uh, and literally, you look straight across the lake from where Klaus's office is and look straight at Tedros's office at WHO. I mean, it's almost like he could take a little sailboat and say, we're going to declare an emergency, health emergency today in lower Slobovia because we want the, you know, and then just send the boat <laughs> right across. That's That's what's happening right now. The power center is in... Is, is is this ability for the WHO to call these emergencies and you lock down the country and then with relatively few people, you can take over everything. Um, sign a deal with the foreign minister to get an energy deal, sign a deal over here with the defense minister to get a weapons deal. It It's sort of like the CIA in the old days before they had to work too hard. Like Guatemala... Frank Wisner and, and Frank Sturgis or, or whatever his name was, all those guys, they, they said, we took Guatemala with like eight guys because we locked down the ports. We, we had control of the press. We put out some propaganda. Everybody stayed home. Whoop. Did changing, I lose you, Sean? Just changing my camera battery. Keep going. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's like this guy's droning on. <laughs> he's, he's blown through my, uh, another battery. <laughs> More like Schwab shutting us down. There you go. <laughs> So I, I haven't really been looking much at the at the chat, but you have a great chat, very active chat. Yeah, you've got some questions coming. I'll, I'll put those to you. I mean, there's there's so much. We've only got 15 minutes left, uh -huh. <laughs> but this, we could have talked for hours. So uh, going back to Camilla earlier, what can you tell us about sonic weapons? That's from Jake. Camilla, um, uh, you mean Camilla? Okay. Um, well, there was an interesting experiment being done, it looked like, at the Cuban embassy. Um, and, you know, this sort of edge weapons, the wonder weapons, there's always an area of speculation, right? Because it's cutting edge and nobody knows and these are very secret things. But we're into the realm of speculation. So put the red speculation lights, specul high-octane speculation alert. But I think the number one ambition of uh, of an operation that they called blackjack uh and this was the sars mers sars 2 program was the ability to image terrorists and image them from space and figure out who are the terrorists and then who are the good guys that are just neutrals or our guys even more important and that's easy when they're out in a tora in a cave but then they need to come 
together, they mix in a crowd and then you have to be able to pick them out. Well, if you can put something on their clothing, okay, a nanoparticle, a quantum dot or whatever, and like, let's just say this orange Auburn tiger here is a quantum dot. Hey, I can tell the difference between Sean and George because the quantum dot. But what happens when I change the shirt, right? If there was some way of getting people to just naturally ingest the quantum dot, the nanotechnology, the graphene through either shots like a vaccine or through vaping or through the food or through the water. And they just naturally would accumulate this sort of like you accumulate tar in the lungs. And then we could have some devices. Let's just say this is a internet of things device, the microphone here. And we go, Hey, I'm close enough that I can sense that this is the terrorist. This is the bad guy. Or when you go through a Lados detector at the airport. I know it's a long answer to the sonic question, but so we started following this and looking at this nanotechnology, which is really interesting because it turns out if you use a, a ferrous uh, thing, which is a magneto ferrous that responds and images much better, it's what they use in imaging for lung imaging and so forth, much better than non ferrous. So if you use these graphene particles, nanofarad and particles, and they naturally accumulate, you can say, okay, we sprayed this dust at Toroboro. So he's got the Toroboro dust in his lungs. This is a, this is a Osama bin Laden guy here. But now I can also, if I have some of the technology high end, 5G going up to 6G, more terahertz wave, but high energy, Lockheed has a thing called the Guardian and so forth. I can actually warm somebody's blood at a distance. And I can just shoot this at a crowd. The, the Guardian, it's, I've seen it demonstrated. And it'll actually start heating up the blood to the point where it's uncomfortable and the people will stand out. Now, if you have a lot of the Torabora nanoparticles in here, your blood hits, heats up a lot faster and it affects the terrorists in the crowd more than it does the normal, right? So, so I think this is the, the future. This is how they're going to decide between who they want to keep if they ever had that make that decision and who they want to get rid of. So I think the sonic technology is a variant on that theme. All these high-end energy, direct energy type schemes are, are basically trying to get at the same idea, which is can we tag and trace the bad guys and keep separate the good guys, the neutrals, and keep track of our good guys. And this project I've been following for 20 years now, this Operation Blackjack, I think is the key technology. This guy, uh, these badasses in Europe, the NATO spy schools, are the, are the key guys, uh, Enrico and Giuseppe, and then this uh, uh, Pietro. So there's three of them, all the same last name, working on this high-end graphene imaging for NATO. So that's my answer to the sonic question. I, I, no, <laughs> I'm we, sorry. We love, long <laughs> we love long answers on this channel. The more detail, the better. And you say okay. it all with a smile on your face, but this is seriously scary stuff. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm terrified hearing this stuff, George. Easy yeah. E has, has put a, a follow on uh, comment. Um, what's your thoughts on China cooking Indian soldiers from the inside out? Uh, a few years back during a skirmish with a microwave-type weapon? Yeah, I, I 
do think this does exist. Everybody thinks that Star Wars and doesn't the the do weapons don't exist. They do. They really do exist. I I actually was at a lived right across from a Navy training center where they tested this stuff. You get high enough energies, and you cycle a small nuclear device back and forth between critical and subcritical and so forth, and you get pulse pulse. It's called. You can generate a tremendous amount of energy. And like I say, if you have some absorptive things in your body, then you can create the heat effects to the point where you can make it very uncomfortable or, or like the person saying, cooking the person actually. Um, I think it's called the Lockheed Guardian. If you want to, if you think this is woo-woo, crazy, crazy talk, just Google that and then you're going to be surprised. Oh, wow, you got a question here then from Easy E. Um, was Anthony Weiner's laptop hack and the files hidden for the security of the nation? Well, I think Anthony Weiner's files were a subset of all the files. There's a thousand emails in between Hillary Clinton and David Petraeus that I think are the juice. And there's 30 of them that have to do with uh, Benghazi. I had a research partner that was absolutely convinced this was the MERS SARS. You know, this Benghazi was a place where we were going to release various versions of the virus and then try to develop back in Fort Belvoir, try to develop the vaccines. They were going to move that operation to Aleppo and so on and so on and so on. Just there's always a new place where we're affecting a new population. Um, I don't have the proof, but I think um, that that's the juice in the emails is overthrows and using the dark weapons to do overthrows, force multipliers, make the, make everybody sick. So it's not really killing anybody, but then your small force who, that doesn't have a lot of experience or confidence goes in and shoots everybody that in the sick bay, right? And it's an easy win in, in Libya versus, you know, going up against a, a strong fighting force. Anexus wants to know the role of Epstein and Maxwell in all of this. Well, you know, I said uh, Epstein, you're an expert on uh, Epstein, so I tip my hat to you and all the books you've written. But, uh, but there was a lot of meetings in Haiti with Bill, uh, uh, Bill Gates about viruses and vaccines. They used to go, I had a guy tell me, flew helicopters, they said it came down once a month. I can't, that's a little bit frequent for, I can't even believe that. But maybe even, even if it's once a year. Gates got into this CRISPR technology with uh, with Epstein, uh, with this other third party. <clears throat> um, again, a lot of money to be made in vaccines. And again, Haiti's a close island. That's a test tube, basically, for the United States and the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. And it's, and it's sheltered off in an island, so there's not a lot of tr human traffic between Haiti and not like Bermuda, where there's a ferry that's going back and forth every day. So <clears throat> I look at Haiti and Bill Gates and Epstein as the big untold story that, uh, you know, that's, you know, I, I've been down to the island. Somebody played my <clears throat> uh, thing down at Biden Island and, and Little St. James today. I try to go to all these places and, and re really suss it out and ask a lot of questions. But that's the one thing, Terramar with Ghislaine is another big thing where it's like, Hey, uh, you get more than 12 miles off of any place. You have all the oil rights. It's open game. So if we have our little, you know, uh, Letourneau, uh, 
floating drill rig, that's us. We own that. So I, I think oil and gas is another thing that people sell short. I'm not saying that there wasn't child trafficking. I'm not saying that there wasn't all that stuff. I'm sure there was. Uh, Eddie did a great job covering it. Uh, I want to, Russell, um, Inner City Press, William Russell Lee, I think his name is, does a great job on covering that. I'll never be able to cover a trial like that. So go to those guys for the trial coverage. But I try to go to their places that not a lot of people talk about or, or show. So, yeah, Charlie Robinson as well has done a lot on Charlie Robinson and Haiti and all that content, of course, got banned off YouTube. So, yeah, yeah, oh, God, that says a lot right there. <laughs> got counter narrative done. <laughs> do you think, do you think it stops with Maxwell incarcerated? None of the bigger players are going to be revealed. The mainstream is going to protect the establishment, is going to protect the bigger players in that case. Yeah, is she in, uh, they moved her to Florida recently? Yeah, to a minimum security in Florida. And it's sort of like uh, Anthony like Weiner's thing uh, where tennis, badminton, golf, uh, you know, it's it's like being at summer camp. I mean, that the real low intensity one, I think, is the worst she, they, they, they put her. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, 50 years. I think people will forget about it in a couple of years and then she'll be out like Weiner, same thing. Bill Cosby. <laughs> is Cosby out? Oh, he got he got out. We we now say people get Cosby'd out. That's our verb. <laughs> <laughs> I I, well, I didn't follow that case very much. I'm sorry, but you know, I, I it is. I see people. You know, obviously, it's very horrible. Um, I went and interviewed uh, some of the people down near Miralago. I went to Miralago. Uh, the recruiting there and the child trafficking horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I, I, I don't want to make light of it. I'm just saying that we're covering different aspects of it and and making light of the fact that she has gotten such a light sentence. You know, really. Um, we had Juliet Bryant on last week, and she spent two years with Epstein and Maxwell, and she said that they were so close to Bill Clinton. It, there was like weekly communication with Bill Clinton. And, you know, he's, he put that statement out, didn't he, saying he had hardly anything to do with Epstein. So a bit of a contradiction there. <laughs> well, I think there was a lot of compromise activities even before Bill Clinton. Uh, well, when Clinton was president especially, but there was, you know, they had that whole Harvard thing and they would all go out and if Bill Clinton's going to be speaking, all the people that you want to compromise. Go back to Bob Maxwell, the father, did the same exact thing. He'd have the big... A draw card i can't remember who exactly it was but all these scientists would go he'd bring in all the girls girls would all get drugged up and then the, the cameras come out and all of a sudden he's got the largest scientific what was it prentice hall and uh, springer I and mean, he's got the largest english uh intellectual property in the world publishing house and that's bob maxwell and that's that's really the apple did not fall far from the tree with going so i think i could speak to you all day george but we're running out of time is there anything yep. you'd like like to say in the last couple of minutes then to the viewers um i just want to thank you sean for this opportunity um is this uh youtube or is this rumble or something so presently we're on patreon crowdcast okay yeah so we'll put we'll put some clips out on the other platforms um after we get this this get this finished Okay, all I would say is I'd love to do it again. And uh, you can find me at Real George Web One. 
Uh, we didn't talk too much about the lawsuit, but basically the CNN lawsuit is all about, uh, I basically said that there was a, this baby bio bomb in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in Wuhan and it had nothing to do with one person that they chose to focus on and they made it into a smear piece. So did 60 minutes. And that's not what it's about at all. As a matter of fact, we did a whole movie on it and the person wasn't even mentioned. So that's the, all I'll say about that, and I'll keep you updated if you want me to over time. Yeah, definitely. When are you coming back to the UK? Oh, gosh. If it meant meeting you, Sean, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd jump on a plane probably toward the end of August, probably in after mid-August. But I'd love well, to... You are, you're you coming back to the UK? That's yeah. Um, yeah. I would like to, uh, there are different things developing. You know, the big thing for me is Epstein's, uh, not Epstein, excuse me, Julian Assange. And he's got his thing coming up and he'll be coming to Virginia if that goes through. And I just think I'm not going to be one of those. Lee Camp was another guy with some backbone. You know, it's like, I'm not going to, just because everybody tells me to stab him in the back now, I'm not going to stab him in the back. He provided a lot of great journalism and we should, this is a guy who didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) He's just a great journalist and he's being treated like uh, a terrorist. What the hell? You know? So I, that's my big thing that I want to get back there to Belmarsh. If, if he's still there, are you going to be staying in London then? I can. Um, I like to stay a little bit out a little bit because it's a lot cheaper like Slough, <laughs> you know, Slough, you know about Slough, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like to be outside the third ring if you know what I mean, yeah. you know, it's so expensive inside London, but, um, um, and the traffic and all that, but, uh, the train, uh, you know, look, keep, so, keep us, keep us posted, George. We'll, we'll, we'll get you in, in a studio. I'll bring a cameraman to you, do a proper, you know, couple of hours. Yeah. And, um, we, we'll get a huge reach on that. I think. Yeah. What part of the, on the clock uh, are you as far as uh, London is concerned? Uh, nine o'clock, four, four okay. o'clock. Okay. So Guildford is about seven, eight, between seven and eight o'clock. Yeah. Guildford. Okay. About how far from Piccadilly are you, would you say? All right. So from Waterloo station, uh-huh. you can get to Guildford on the express train in about 30 minutes. Guilford, yeah, seven and eight o'clock. Yeah, so you're out toward uh, Christopher Steele country there. He he lived out in that section. Um, yeah. Alice in Wonderland, all that stuff is in Guilford. Lewis Carroll lived there for a bit. Oh, he did. Okay, I, I was yeah. Guilford. I always thought of uh, who's the guy, Christopher Marlowe, and he got killed in Deptford. I always thought Deptford was out that way toward Guilford, but it, maybe it's just because it said Ford at the end. <laughs> yeah, there's a so, lot of Fords. Yeah, there's a lot of Fords. Okay, well, this has been great, Sean. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Absolutely mind-blowing, terrifying, and you do it all with with this charismatic smile. So (laughs) cheers, George. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that was amazing. I would say that George, in terms of, you know, just speaking ability and setup, studio setup, audio, visual, one of the best guests we've ever bloody had. And his level of knowledge and the way he delivers it in such a friendly way, even though it's the scariest stuff on the face of the earth, he's unique, definitely. So we've got to keep tabs on George and get him in a studio in England and do a big old production with him that will go mental 
all over the world yes <laughs> all right so thanks for all your questions guys thank you for being our patreons on this special day when we went over 700,000 subs and huge thanks to ash who's already gone to bed thanks to andrew who's already gone to bed thanks to the mods you you know you've had your work cut out for you this week when we've had massive multi-hour premieres nearly every night of the week and it's continuing tomorrow we've got another one so yeah it has been absolutely brilliant i'm so happy with all the guests everything that we're doing and verity said sean i watched a good deal of the 12-hour stream of cult vault thank you for donating your books sending you much love oh thank you verity thank you anita easy e thank you for all your engagement rebecca litty uh let's see what else is in there i know it was fred earlier there's jake and ray j ray j gets around doesn't he <laughs> what will we do about ray j all right good night everyone take care out there hope to see some of you tomorrow in the premiere for dr das jimmy savile mccann and other harrowing cases goodbye for now thank you